Sorry to startle you, I said. My name is Elgar, and this is my friend Andrew. King Elgar? Marvin cocked his brow at me. I glanced at Andrew. Is this seriously a thing? Andrew shook his head and shrugged his burly shoulders while keeping his arms crossed. This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 19, The Dreadnought. I've been working hard to finish the latest audiobook sequel to The Last Necromancer, which is available on Audible, by the way, but that's not what this episode is about. Dreadnought takes place several months after The Last Necromancer has ended, but Dreadnought is a standalone novel, so you don't need to have read the previous book to know what's going on. Enjoy the first five chapters of Dreadnought, and be sure not to disturb the Great Old One while he rests. Chapter 1 Demon in the Herd have you ever ridden a donkey before? I hadn't, which made my trip to Porta Gulch, 50 miles west of Yuktaz in the third known universe, much more uncomfortable. My name is Elgar King. I and my kind are known as psionics, people capable of manipulating the time-space around us like magic to those viewing from the outside. My second major trial began when I was 14 years old, the summer after my first year at USS, the University of the Seven Suns. Picture a vast canyon rolling out to the horizon with rising and falling mesas meandering through its channels and valleys beneath a gradually fading red sunset. That was Porta Canyon. The beauty is something that you would have to see for yourself if you were able to travel away from your Universe 7 to a deserted planet that was scheduled for demise in about 500,000 years. That planet was currently rocketing around a sun within a remote galaxy where I was lollygagging on a mandatory summer quest for school, which landed me on the stupidest brush donkey you'd ever laid eyes on. There were so many flies around its head and pointy ears, I assumed they'd already eaten most of its brain. So much for experiencing the flavor of the Wild West, although this was probably closer to the truth. I had hoped my best friend Christina Harriet would join me, but she travels with her family in the summers. I had other friends from school, a holy student named Andrew Sibelius, but he was 17 years old and had bigger fish to fry than to hang out with a lobie like me. I had another friend named Felonius Bruckner who went by the name of Bucky. He was a fellow alterations major. We had already killed six quests this week and needed a break from one another. My other friend, an elementalist named George Mozart, was off doing other awesome interdimensional things this summer while I was doing this summer quest that I had been putting off for the last month. I mentioned earlier that I was an alterations student last year. I assumed I'd be in alterations again once my semester started back up, but that's where things get complicated. There are four major schools of magic that are accepted by the psionic community as a whole, and those are the holy discipline whose students spend years channeling God's divine holy power and scrying magical scrolls that keep the rest of us alive. Then there are alteration students who can manipulate and alter the physical world around them. They also call upon foresight to give the rest of us quests. Elemental students can harness the elemental powers of wind, water, thunder, and fire. Nature students get their energy directly from the planets themselves. Different planets seem to give different druids particularly interesting powers. All of these psionic people studying and questing across the eleven universes were doing seemingly odd jobs for Zen credits, our currency, in order to maintain the time-space continuum in each universe for as long as possible. However, last year it became clear that there was another magical discipline that I would need to cover single-handedly for the rest of my life. I discovered three months into my psionic training that I was not an alteration student, but a necromancer. Everyone has an aura that aligns with their given specialty skill. Harriet's, as a nature student, is green. Andrew's holy aura is white. Mozart's elemental is yellow. And Bucky's alterations is clear. 
My aura is black. It was clear while I was an alterations student until I sealed my first archdaemon, Riptos, a few months back. From then on, I was a necromancer with a black aura and proud. Not really. Being a necromancer in a community of holy-run psionics is a real pain in my ass. I was constantly finding myself in courtrooms. They started with the school courtroom, then it was a community forum, and then it was a massive temple on the psionic side of the Vatican. My existence was an abomination in the eyes of God, even though I had to do my penance and understand the scriptures just as well as any holy student. There were a few reasons why I hadn't been butchered to death, burned, decapitated, and buried chained upside down under a river, the main one being that I was under 19. There are psionic laws stating that an underage psionic cannot be executed unless he or she has been proven dangerous. Sure, I killed my first mortal when I was 11 years old, but only because I was trying to rescue an innocent student who had been kidnapped. Another reason the Holy Council found it hard to throw the book at me for existing was the fact that at the end of the last year, I became the last psionic diplomat capable of moving between hell and the mortal world, ergo the emissary between heaven and hell. That sounds really awesome, but the only task I had been given was to deliver a package that turned out to be a package from Cronus, the Greek titan of the underworld. The package was confiscated by a few archangels before I could get out of Arcana City. To say that my life as a psionic was rocky is an understatement. Would I trade and go back to a mortal life? Not in a million years. That being said, I still had no idea just how far my influence went, and wouldn't know until the middle of August when school started again. For now, it was a lazy Saturday afternoon, and I was hoping it would be one of those special afternoons that sticks in your memory as the perfect day where nothing happens and all is well. My donkey had started walking sideways toward the ranch in the middle of an oval field between the cliffs of the canyon. I traveled alongside a river that I had followed since I left Yuktaz. When I approached the ranch house, the owner, wearing a pair of leather riding pants but no shirt, stepped out onto the porch. He had a big bushy mustache and kind of looked like Freddie Mercury. Years of living off the land in the midst of this planet's old west had taken its toll on him. This man's name was Miguel Dolero Nala Calcian. Oi hey, I called. My quest target didn't speak English. I'd gotten to know the local language in Yuktaz pretty well even though I still didn't know what the regional dialect was called. I wasn't sure if he knew different words or if I was just bad at speaking his language, but I asked him if he needed help rounding up his escaped cattle and he seemed to understand. He held up a hand intending for me to wait. He went inside for a minute before returning with a white shirt and brown leather jacket. Famosi, famosi, Miguel waved at the donkey. I hitched the pathetic creature at the hitching post in front of his house and followed the man toward his stables. You might be wondering why, if I was basically an interdimensional space jumper, I would be going through this much trouble to help this lonesome soul gather his escaped livestock without using magic to speed up the process. This particular quest offered a 25% bonus to my Zen reward if I finished it without magic. I wasn't even able to port out here. We have the power to visualize a location and teleport there in an instant, assuming that location is connected to the ground and assuming we've been there before. You couldn't look at a photograph and appear at that location. A lot of locations change over the years, making it harder to teleport there if you haven't been in a long time. That afternoon I would be working my legs and living the hard life until every last one of Miguel's cows had been returned. In the next few days, he was going to meet a formerly wealthy wanderer who had lost his wife and fortune at sea. The wanderer would offer Miguel a contact who would buy all of his cows at a marked up price. That contact would pay Miguel more money for every trip he made to bring bigger crews of cattle. All in all, it was necessary for a descendant at the end of this to inherit Miguel's fortune that would fund one of the first manned faster-than-light-speed vessels that would keep this strand of humanity alive beyond the inevitable death of their planet. 
If I didn't do this summer quest, Miguel Dolero Nalakalshian would have nothing to offer the wealthy wayward traveler and thus thwart his future business opportunities. By helping Miguel, I thought as I watched him open the gates to the stables, I realized that I was helping close the door on a happier life. Losing the cattle would be the best thing in the universe for Miguel. He would be forced to move back to Yuktaz where he would fall in love with a woman and they would have three children. He would have an average job as a shopkeeper for his father's company, but as far as changing the world and fulfilling his dreams as a rancher and cattle driver to succeed in his only solo business venture that a friend helped him start, that dream would be dead. In his alternative success, Miguel would be married three times but never satisfied. He would wander through the marketplace in his wealthy garb and his eyes would pass over the woman he fell in love with in a different life. He would see straight through her. This is what I know of Miguel Dolero Nalakalshian. And this is why I felt bad for him. Is the universe itself worth sacrificing for a brief glimpse of love? But I had chosen this quest out of a number of equally crushing quests, so I was to help Miguel round up his cattle. He let me borrow a spotted gray mare that made my donkey feel like one of those quarter rides in front of the grocery stores. We rode out, Miguel riding a purebred brown stallion. He tossed me a coil of rope that I slipped over my arm. I wore a long-sleeved cotton shirt with a leather vest and black denim jeans to match my black boots. Equipment and clothing is no issue for a psionic. We are able to change clothing as well as physical appearance on a whim. We call it swapping. You still have to have worn anything you want to change into. Another perk of being a psionic is our inventory. The inventory is a spell that I can cast in my mind that allows me to look left and see the shelf of my choosing. My inventory was still the wooden shelf my dad had made in our garage at home in North Richland Hills, Texas. On the far left, there were three school books my curriculum required me to memorize before the summer was over. Next to that lay a knife Harriet had given me for my birthday last March. There was a neatly folded set of sheets that I used for various reasons, but mostly as a soft piece for delicate objects. You'd be surprised how many I come across during quests. On top of the cloth was my Midas stone. Midas stands for Magical Interface Display and Archive System, which allows me to access a conical holographic display that gives me stats, maps, and other information. It was mostly offline until my quest was completed. Next to the Midas stone sat a small sliver of the Minotaur horn I had used to shatter a gateway to hell, and several port cards I kept on me in case I fell a long distance and needed to escape in a pinch. On the other side of my shelf were piles of my parents' food rations and water bottles so I'd stay hydrated and well-fed on my quests that occasionally took me to some hairy places. I followed Miguel out to where the cattle had been scattered. When we slowed a few of the stragglers, I asked him why he didn't go after them earlier. Miguel shook his head with a worried look on his face. No mamas, dad. I'd never heard anything like that in Yuktaz or anywhere else. Mano regus no mamas, dad? I asked. Namastad regus no mamas, dad, Miguel replied. I still didn't get it. Miguel pointed toward a herd of his cows milling by a copse of trees on the shelf of land above the rush of the river nearby. I watched as an unnatural bump in the land rolled toward the cows. The land broke open and a giant mouth seemed to swallow one of the cows up. Miguel took a step back and stammered, No mamastad! So, no mamastad was the local language for demon, because that was none other than the largest earth demon I'd ever heard of. I'd never seen one in real life, but I had read about them in one of my teacher's books. This was a problem because I was going to need magic in order to prevent the creature from coming back to Miguel's lands. We watched it roll over to another cow and swallow it whole without the cow making more than an exclamatory moo. I looked to the sky above and wondered why I had been given a quest with an impossible stipulation attached to it. After the third cow was taken, I gigged my horse forward and we galloped over the land. I jumped off at a safe distance and channeled orders to my horse to get Miguel and his horse out of here. 
Speaking to animals is a simple nature spell we learned in our first year. I opened my inventory and grabbed the knife that Harriet had given to me. My Midas let me know that I was nearing disqualification levels of magic use for the quest bonus. Finishing the quest was necessary, but I didn't expect to get the bonus zen for doing it without magic. It was 11.30 in the morning back home. I had to wrap this up anyway in order to get to Granberg by 1 this afternoon for Andrew's paladin christening. It sounded like a waste of time, but Andrew's help had been invaluable when he helped us take down a minotaur last year. I heard Miguel protesting to his horse as he intended to help me, but this was not a fight for a mortal. I raised my hands to the ready. Chichin! I called, feeling a painful twinge in my forehead as a psychic ripple of earth fired from under the ground from my position. I touched my temple as the ripple struck the demon underground. It blasted a monstrous, rotund, earthy creature out of the ground that immediately vomited the blood and gore of several recently consumed cows all over the deadpan grass of the field. I had been hungry minutes earlier, but not anymore. Road lage! I called, and the earth demon turned around to face me, blood dripping from its mouth that was like a tear in its wide, toad-like expression. Its eyes were giant yellow circles and shadowy holes within its face that was part of its upper body. I took a step back and charged a shadow bomb, but the demon was angry now. It curled into a ball and began rolling straight for me. Being able to port would be really helpful. I yelled and jumped out of the way as the earth demon barreled past me. My horse had been skirting the parameter of the field in case I needed help, but galloped closer to me at the jerk of my head. I then noticed the big red circle with a line through it glowing on the back of my hand. Ignoring it, I climbed atop my horse and pursued the demon that was rolling across country toward Miguel's house. I charged my shadow bomb once more as we rode up next to the thundering demon, passing into a small grove of trees. Gulen Poktan! I heaved the ball of condensed shadow energy into the earth demon, which was more destructive than I remembered it being. It literally blew the demon and me and my horse away from a smoldering green crater within the trees. I had been working on my own holy light over the summer as holy spells were my weakest and needed to be my second strongest. I cast holy light upon my horse as the monstrous earth demon struggled to crawl away from the consuming green fire of the shadow bomb. The flame was neutralized with holy energy. After making sure my horse would live, I jogged over to the monstrous earth demon while casting my demon sealing spell upon Harriet's knife. The knife blade began to glow purple. The demon turned and raised a hand in protest, but I plunged the glowing blue-purple blade into the creature's stomach under its face. A shockwave fired me backward as the knife remained suspended in air. The earth demon's form turned into purple sand and collected into the knife that became searing hot. Once the creature had disappeared, the knife dropped to the ground. It immediately exploded and the demon materialized within the field in front of me once more. With a big earthy hand, the demon slammed his fist into me, sending me sprawling. No sooner had I hit the ground before I was wrapped and curled in tree roots as the earth demon staggered toward me. My whole body was bound in vines and roots from the trees around us. If I wasn't restricted from porting, then I'd be able to get free, but for now I was preparing my fire spell. Elgar Centrifia's king! It gave a guttural croak. I was surprised to hear it speak, that it knew how to pronounce English, and much, much more surprised that it knew my middle name. You have been summoned! Three days! It held up three fingers before reaching into its own mouth and withdrawing a faded amber scroll that had a coating of cow's innards all over it. The creature then dropped the scroll and dove back into the earth and disappeared completely. A few seconds later, the vines let go, dropping me painfully to the ground. I got up and looked around, utterly baffled at the battle's unexpected ending. I bent over and plucked the dripping scroll from the yellow grass and unrolled it to see the painted porcelain face of a Korean woman in traditional clothing. Korean symbols line the sides of the scroll as well as the slightly stylistic Magil runic characters. Magil was our magical language that was derived from Hangul Korean characters. 
I hadn't known that last year, but the origination of psionics in the world today came from Korea back when it was one country. I could read the characters, both Hangul and Magul, but it didn't make very much sense to me. Elgar, Centrifius, King. You have been summoned by E. Min He, Central Mudang Services, Seoul, South Korea. I lowered my scroll and looked around at the empty grove around me as the wind gently caressed the tree branches and fallen yellow leaves. What is this? I asked, holding up the scroll as if someone might appear and explain everything. Three days? Three days until what? There was no answer. I put the scroll in my inventory and rounded up Miguel's cattle. I wouldn't get the bonus, but it didn't matter. I quickly finished and returned to Yuktaz, where I was able to port from the library in town back to my house. St I changed into some nice clothes for Andrew's paladin thing. Checking the fridge, my mother had left me a bowl of saran-wrapped macaroni and cheese and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I gobbled them down and poured it to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, where I went through the gate beyond the Cathedral Hall in the Necropolity San Pietro. On the other side of the Vatican you know about, there's a psionic side that's just as holy and pious, but they embrace the psionic power derived from the divinity. The city is known as Gramberg, where all the holy students congregate and pat one another on the back and talk about God all day, just like the regular Vatican. I saw a number of students from class congregating by the pillars outside the Basilica of the great psionic St. Elmer. Bucky was hanging out with a girl whose name I didn't know at the time. I saw Mozart and a few other guys from the elemental classes chatting. Stefan Mahler, our elemental instructor, was wearing a nice pair of white slacks, black dress shoes, and a green pinstripe shirt. He would have looked great if he hadn't decided to wear an unfashionable bowler hat he had picked up long ago. Chatting with him was our former sit-in principal, Anne Schumann, who had replaced our former principal, Antoine Dvorak. He had decided that releasing a horrible demon from hell in exchange for the life of his deceased daughter of 63 years wouldn't have life-ending consequences. The scary part is that Sadie Dvorak was alive, and I hadn't seen her since she was pulled away from her father as the demon Riptos tore through him from the inside out. And Schumann, unlike Dvorak, hated me. She didn't say that outright, but she was from the Holy Spectrum, and I was from the Unholy Spectrum, literally black and white. She had short brownish-blonde hair that was curled just beneath her ears, so she looked like a mushroom. She had brown doe's eyes, but her jaws were firmly locked closed when she wasn't speaking. School practices had continued as usual, more or less, but I had been perpetually harassed by her since she was looking for an excuse to dislike me. Fortunately, I had heard that she'd been replaced over the summer, so I wouldn't have to deal with her anymore. I saw my alterations professor, Victor Stravinsky, meeting with Norman Purcell, the holy instructor. Both were balding men, Stravinsky standing a bit shorter than Purcell, but Stravinsky had grown out his beard to mar his formerly innocent complexion. Purcell wore his signature black robes as Stravinsky didn't believe this event warranted leaving vacation far behind as he wore a pair of khaki shorts and sandals and a red and black Hawaiian shirt. I didn't see Harriet either before I realized that there wasn't a single nature student here at all. Hey there, Elgar, a boy I knew only as Edison said from my side. He had strawberry blonde hair that had been trimmed 20 minutes earlier from the look of it. He wore a blue polo shirt and pinstripe golf pants. This made me think that in exchange for our magical abilities, maybe we psionics really are colorblind and devoid of all fashion sense. How's it going, Edison? I asked. You remembered my name, he beamed. I laughed. I still occasionally watch our lessons from last year and hear your comment on us astrally projecting ourselves into our timeless world. That's probably the best description I've ever heard for it. We psionics have the ability to project ourselves, during deep meditation known as Vipassana, into a non-physical mental projection of the world and program that world depending on our level of alteration skills for as long as we need to learn what is necessary, study, read, or even nap when sleep and time is short. 
It's how I'll have a full doctorate by the time I turn 18 and be able to do advanced questing on a much bigger scale than just working through seven realms connected to the school. I've lost stuff in the timeless world. If you're not careful, it'll collapse and kick you back into your meditating body. What do you think of Meathead Academy out here? Edison asked. What, paladin training? I asked. You got it, nodded Edison. Frickin' Navy Seals of the Holy Class. You know why they make you wait until you're 17, right? Can't say I do, I said. Because your bones have stopped growing so they can force you to work out in order to wear the plate mail. Andrew's going to look like a defensive lineman in the year, Edison said. Why don't more people try out for the position? I asked. Because the dropout rate for paladin training is 50-50, and if you drop out, you're pretty much done with the holy field altogether. As if clambering for Purcell's favor isn't irritating enough. An organ solo filled the hall, signifying the start of the event. Get ready for church. This is going to be a long afternoon of ceremonial BS. After, we found seats in the cathedral and had to sit in assigned seats. On the podium ahead, Andrew was being showered with blessings from the Archbishop Peter Delanova. It felt like the longest church service ever. I found myself nodding off several times during the hymns that happened every five minutes. Sit, stand, sit, stand, sing, stand, stand, and stand. Part of it was the enchantment that holy people have cast all over their realms to keep people like me with black auras as uncomfortable as humanly possible. The other part was that I couldn't stand sitting through church. But then things got interesting as they were donning Andrew with the Paladin Initiate's plate mail. It had a massive tree emblem emblazoned upon the breast of silver metal. My face was plastered to my hand as my elbow was propped on the unnaturally high armrest of the pew. Several priests were chanting Latin prayers as Delanova gently placed the breastplate over Andrew's shoulders. His beady head looked small within the crater opening at the top of the bulk of plate mail. There was a collective gasp from my classmates and the audience of visitors and holy staff members. I sat up quickly. The prayers and organ players stopped as smoke began to curl from under the plate mail surrounding Andrew's head. The archbishop stood back. Andrew lifted his gloved hands. He was shaking in a way that I had never seen before as Andrew had always had a very high constitution. What's happening? I asked Nancy, a blonde girl from the holy class who had unfortunately gotten seated next to me. She had spent the majority of the awkward church service making sure she didn't appear to be associated with me at all whatsoever. She looked at me from the corner of her eye but ignored my question. Andrew yelled, bawling his fists as his whole body began to turn beet red. Juggernaut! Peter Delanova growled as Andrew grew to twice his size and hoisted the plate mail breastplate as hard as he could down the aisle where it literally sparked across the stone floor and tumbled past me into the pew a few rows back. I thought at the time that this had to be an awesome dream, that I had fallen asleep in church and I'd snort back to consciousness in a few seconds to see Andrew in full paladin armor, but several priests ported to his side and escorted him from the stage. Andrew was clamping and opening his fists over and over as he decreased in size. There was a big singed ring around his tunic where the plate mail had burned through his clothes to his flesh. This is extremely unorthodox, Delanova said. Had I known you were a juggernaut, Andrew, I never would have agreed to christen you as Paladin. Andrew was speechless. He just stood there, with smoke issuing from his shoulders while everyone in the psionic world stared at him. He was beyond humiliated. Andrew blinked back to himself and ran off stage. Several of the students laughed, but they were shamed by the rest of us into keeping quiet. I guess the ceremony is over then? I asked Nancy. You think, Sherlock? She shook her head as she uncrossed her arms and stood up. She poured it away as several other students began doing the same. We can be so rude as psionics with the ability to travel at an instant. I shrugged, stood up, and poured it back to my house. St my father had always wanted the perfect family. Having a psionic son threatened that image of the proper family of four. Perfect wife, a son, and a daughter. 
the pack against the world and everyone doing well in the process. The members of this perfect vision were present, my sister of two months occupying most of my parents' time, but I was always a question mark for my father. I learned in later years that while he questioned my lifestyle heavily, he always had my back and supported me. I sat at the dinner table across from my father, reading an ancient book that had belonged to the great Isaac Hollendorf himself. Turns out, a juggernaut could never be a paladin as they harness rage energy which is derived from the darkest parts of one's consciousness. Something told me that Andrew probably knew that but didn't expect the deeply consecrated armor of a holy warrior to burn through his clothes and scald his flesh. When was the last time you went outside, Elgar? My father asked. He now had a job as a software engineer, so he was home a lot more frequently than he used to be when he drove a semi-truck. I wrinkled my forehead as I reached over the book to grab and take a bite from my sandwich. Like this morning? I was out cattle rustling. I got the rashes on my legs to prove it. I remembered now that I didn't get that bonus in thanks to the annoying earth demon. I see. My dad's face fell. He had wanted to chastise me for being in my room all the time, but I was out doing things every single day. But what about summer? Shouldn't you be jumping into pools or running around the neighborhood with friends? I went spelunking for a lost turquoise artifact two weeks ago with Bucky, I said, leaving out the part where we almost died several times being chased by a tribe of troglodytes who considered the artifact their holy god. And did you succeed? My father asked. Sure, I said. I see. He remained dejected. Ah, sports. How about sports? He had me there. My mind couldn't process television or smartphone screens, so if I wanted to learn about football, baseball, basketball, and soccer, I'd have to read the sports section of the newspaper, which was far less interesting than books on how to summon a fire god to protect you for a short period of time in the event that you were assaulted by a troop of abominable snowmen. Hey, anything's possible within the scheme of eleven universes that have been expanding and contracting into and out of existence endlessly within the Eternium. No time for sports. I dropped my eyes to the pages of my book. My dad took that opportunity to take me outside and throw the baseball with me. We had never done that, but evidently the scenario had been premeditated. My dad took time to show me how to throw a football, which is harder than it looks. It takes a particular grip and throw of the arm to get a good spiral. I'm going to tell you something I learned about running when I was young, my father said. Start at set, keep your head low, and then when you go, fall. Fall? I asked. You won't really fall, but if you don't pump yourself into action, you will, he said. Your body will gyroscope with the throw of your elbows and arms once you pull upright. That's how track and field runners hit their high speed as quickly as they can. Awesome, I said as we practiced. It was a helpful skill to know. I took that beautiful afternoon and father-son time for granted. I remember well because I couldn't stop thinking about it while my mother, my sister, and I were in the hospital three days later. Chapter 2 King Elgar it was the strangest thing to happen to a person, the doctors later told me and my mother in the room over my comatose father. He was perfectly healthy and there didn't seem to be anything wrong with him other than that he couldn't wake up. As the paramedics had wheeled him out of the house and into the ambulance, all the way to the hospital to the diagnosis, I knew that this was because of that weird scroll I'd been given. They had cursed and warned me that I had been summoned. I had no idea that my failure to comply would result in a terrible health misfortune in my father. As I still had not yet started my second year in psionic training, I was stunted to sending what would be considered a psionic text message through my Midas. I shot Bucky and Andrew messages letting them know that I needed someone to contact Melissa from the Holy Ward so she could help my father. I didn't know who eventually responded, but a minute later, Melissa, the leader of the infirmary ward of the Holy Wing in USS, entered the room dressed like one of the doctors of the hospital. She had long brown hair and brown eyes. 
She wore a pair of black flats and a blue dress under the white doctor's coat she had stolen from a doctor in the hall. She looked like she had been somewhere special before being interrupted. Melissa closed the door and walked over to my father. She must have spent five minutes scanning him and chanting different holy spells, but nothing made him move even a little. At last, Melissa turned to me. Elgar, I need you to be honest and tell me who might have done this. Upon seeing that this might have been my fault, my mother looked as if she had just found out I had cut open the family dog. Having already attended my fair share of courtrooms, I didn't like discussing the details of my quests and whereabouts openly, but this wasn't a normal circumstance. I'm not sure how this relates to my father, but I failed a summer quest a little over three days ago because I encountered an earth demon. I tried to bind it to a knife that Harriet gave me, but the knife was too weak or the demon was too strong and then it broke free. I thought it was going to kill me, but then it pulled out the scroll and said I had three days. I drew the scroll from my inventory and gave it to Melissa. When she touched the scroll, it burned into ashes. Melissa looked to me with a grave look on her face. I don't know who you've been dealing with, Elgar, but they aren't good people. They seem to think you owe them something. If we weren't psionics, losing that scroll would have been a horrible loss as I have a very selective memory and didn't remember at the time the details of its contents. However, our Midas gives us the ability to review the last 24 hours in the 360 circumference around our position in the universe and save the clips of our experiences for later review. I was able to pull up the scroll from my timeline with ease and show it to Melissa. Melissa hummed. That explains the curse on your dad. I think you need to travel to South Korea to find these people. South Korea? Are you out of your mind? I can't speak Korean, I said. Melissa rolled her eyes. You have a year of Madjul under your belt. It's only a hop skip away from Hangul, the Korean written language. You ought to have learned enough by now to ask why they needed to curse your father to get a point across to you. Besides, don't you know what Mudong means? No, not at all. I don't know what any of that means, I said ignorantly. Mudong is a Korean shaman. If they summon you and you ignore them, bad things happen to you, your family, and your finances. It's in your best interest to find out why they've summoned you and figure out how to help them. Honestly, Elgar, five minutes of research could have told you that and this could have been avoided. Forgive me for trying to take a summer vacation like a normal kid. I crossed my arms. You aren't a normal kid, Melissa said patiently as she took off the white doctor's robe. You're the last necromancer in existence, and that comes with a huge responsibility. Fix this before it gets worse. She nodded at my father, dropped the robe on the floor, and then disappeared. I thought my mother was going to give me a black eye and shrank back as she raised her hand. All of my magical power and I still flinched as if my mother might strike me. She didn't, but I could tell she wanted to. You have three weeks until school starts. If you don't fix this, Elgar. All right, all right, I waved. I'm going. I ported back home to make sure I had everything I needed. All of my necessities were already in my inventory. Big bags of beef jerky and trail mix, several stacks of bottled water, a sleeping bag, flint and steel in case I needed to create a fire the mortal way, fingernail clippers, eye drops, and a small medical kit consisting of hydrogen peroxide, gauze bandages, and antibiotic ointment that my mother had insisted that I take. Other than that, there were my old school books, some of my old teacher's books, and my bedsheet. I didn't even have a backup weapon anymore. But who needs that when you have the hell sword? As I was scanning my inventory, I heard a knock on the door. My parents' car was still at the hospital, so it would be assumed that I and my family were out of the house. I went downstairs and opened the door to see Andrew Sibelius sitting on the steps in front of my parents' enormous wisteria bush in the front yard. Andrew? I asked. He got up and turned around. 
He wore a green sleeveless hoodie, a pair of faded dark blue denim jean shorts, and his regular clodhopper boots. Hey, Elgar, how's it going? I didn't know what to say. Andrew and I got along, but we had never hung out outside of our group of friends. He was also three years older than me, making it perfectly understandable that our being close friends wasn't likely. It's... it's not really all that good right now, Andrew. Is there something you need help with because I have a rather pressing... A quest? He asked eagerly. Uh, sure, I guess it's a quest. It involves a task that needs to be completed, yeah. There's no money in it, though, I said. I don't really need money right now, said Andrew. I just need to stay busy. Are you sure? Doesn't it cost like 250,000 zen to apply for paladin training? I realized this wasn't very tactful of me to say too late as Andrew's head fell. Hey, hey, Andrew, sure, let's, um, let's go kill this quest. I was just doing a quick inventory before I... Before I head to South Korea, I said, still forlorn from my lost summer vacation. Good, good, I'm ready to go when you are, Andrew said without skipping a beat. I had half hoped the idea of having to go to South Korea would deter him from wanting to come with me, but he seemed careless of our destination. Are you sure you're okay, Andrew? I asked. I'm fine. He gave me a weak smile. It had taken me a second, but I realized that Andrew had turned off his aura. There's a feature in your Midas that lets you display your current specialization aura, your personal aura, or turn it off completely. Mortals wouldn't see it either way, but if you were a civilian, it's sometimes nice to display your natural colors. Mine's been a black glow around my person ever since I vanquished Riptos. I used to mask mine as well, but when I found out you can't turn it off in court, I stopped worrying about it. We ported to the New York Public Library, which was my favorite place to access the library Eternium. All of the known universes have been connected by a web that emanates from a massive labyrinth of libraries that have existed across time and space so every library that ever was meets at a nexus that stands between the universes. It's always getting bigger as each universe grows. Eventually the universe collapses, but their libraries will remain intact for as long as the Saturnium construct of reality exists. There's no telling whether or not the whole thing might dissolve in lost space-time at any moment. Climbing the steps, we stepped into the gift shop, entered a corridor, and then turned down another that the mortals couldn't see. From there, we began to see entrances to other past earthen libraries pass as we hurried down the hall. It was a maze looking from the outside in, but everything was carefully categorized in years dating back to the first rooms filled with collections of scrolls and incomprehensible scrawls on brittle papyrus pages. Even organized, it was impossible to navigate the library on your own without the assistance of your Midas. I brought up my Midas and asked it to direct us to the National Library of Korea in Banpodero Road. I followed the map on my Midas and it took us to the International Forum of Present Earth where you could access any current public library in existence. We found our way to the Portal Arcade and stepped into a corridor that became more technologically advanced as we progressed. We entered a large hall where there were mostly computers in the middle of a large, multi-story room. Korean students and citizens were coming and going about their business throughout the building as we walked through casually and descended the steps beneath a grassy walkway that gave the building a green hue. So there we were, on the streets of Sochugu, Seoul, South Korea, a hop-skip and a port jump away from Gangnam, which is considered Central Seoul. From there, we needed to figure out how to contact the psionic community. I already had a harebrained plan that I thought might warrant some attention from the local magic users. If we had access to our school, then we might be able to get into communication with the headmaster of one of the schools here, but it was summer and nobody was at USS for another three weeks. I assumed there had to be a school, or several, considering Korea was apparently where our psionic language and teachings originated. The summer air was warm, and the sky above was a gentle blue behind the skyscrapers and mountains in the distance. 
A group of female joggers passed us as Andrew and I gazed like tourists around the city. When I heard the Korean language spoken, I picked up some of the words and phrases from our magical training. I would later have no trouble speaking most earthen languages fluently, but being a 14-year-old kid tasked with needing to speak a different language made for a scary situation. We crossed several bridges and ported along the roads to downtown Gangnam, finally walking the rest of the way as there were so many people. After completing our first year, the school awards us with a simple black-banded wristwatch with a very generic clock face. The beauty of the watch is that it tells you if someone's looking directly at you for longer than 10 seconds, and mine showed the second hand whirring around the clock face so fast that it made the dense plastic dust guard vibrate. In a downtown area, you might think this would be common, being foreigners, but there weren't any police around and my gut told me it was someone else. I felt a droplet of rain and looked up to see a small, isolated storm cloud hovering over me. No one else seemed able to see it except for Andrew. We exchanged a curious glance before the gray cloud suddenly dashed down the street. We stammered into motion, squeezing between Korean pedestrians and tourists from all over Asia. Andrew was a lot more athletic than me, so he totally left me in the dust as he wove between cars and poured it into the alleyway as the cloud zipped in before him. I port jumped to the alley and landed in a big blue dumpster as Andrew's jogging steps echoed down the corridor between buildings. By the time I clambered out of the trash, Andrew ran back and stopped before me. It disappeared. I lost it. A second later, he was hit with a series of deliberate balls of water. He brought up a stone shield to block the assault as a tall boy with short black hair wearing a pair of Adidas pants and a white t-shirt fired several kicks into Andrew's side. Andrew barely dropped his shield before the two were engaged in a dynamic exchange of elemental magic and physical combat. Andrew had never been as fast as mere Harriet. The good thing about Andrew was that he was so big if he did land a physical strike it hurt like hell. I should know, I'd taken the direct gut shot from the guy during our duels. The stranger didn't continue attacking long enough to feel Andrew's wrath, but poured it away. That was annoying, I said, tugging smelly old potpourri from my shoulder. Over there, Andrew, his damp green sleeveless hoodie dripping with water, pointed beyond the exit of the alley to the hill in the distance where a ray of light shined from the heavens to point upon a seemingly insignificant batch of stones between the trees. We port jumped to the stones which stood within a grove of leafy green trees at the pinnacle of the hill. Why are you here? A young man in a blue jumper and a pair of jeans and shoes appeared, reclining on the ground next to us. And more importantly, he was suddenly behind Andrew, what makes you think you're welcome? Even though I had watched him say this to Andrew, he was standing next to me, speaking it into my right ear. I ported behind him. Someone gave me this. I ported to his other side. When he finally turned all the way around again, I had the Midas image of the Mudong scroll in his face, and suddenly, I was angry. I whipped a telekinetic air current beneath the boy and knocked him to his back on the grass. Tell me where to find this person. An older woman with long black hair tied into a ponytail ported next to the boy. She wore a traditional Korean dress known as a hanbok that was many colors with gold stitching between the different layers. The boy got to his feet and dusted himself off. I took a step toward her with the display still visible. Someone from this place has cursed my father and I want to know how to reverse it, I yelled. You didn't tell me that's what happened, Andrew said, realizing why I was angry. The woman, while she had a soft face, wore a stern expression as she flicked her brown eyes between the image and me. Please calm. She gave it her best shot in English. I can help you. It wasn't until I started learning Mandarin last year that I realized just how strange a language English is, how not necessarily practical it can be for other cultures to learn. I closed my Midas. 
The woman cast a mental spell that I wish she would have said out loud because I'd been hoping to learn a translator spell ever since I started questing. It created a green bubble that hovered next to her head. She began speaking Hangul fluently as the orb lit up with every syllable, translating her every word to fluent English. You can call me Achi. I am the principal of the Han Ma school here in Seoul. This is June. She motioned at the boy who gave a small bow. I am sorry to hear that your father is in danger. We are a school for psionics, not Mudong-specific teachings. I do know the person you seek, however. I fear that if she has involved you and your family, then you have no choice but to confront her. Where can we find her? I asked. The orb lit up as I spoke, translating my speech into Hankuka for Achi and June. She finds you, the orb translated Achi's speech, but only if she deems you worthy of meeting. So, how should I get her attention? I asked. Achi and June glanced at one another. They took Andrew and me to what we know of as a bowman, a place where psionics duel and slaughter one another for sport. This bowman was in Seoul on top of the 63 building overlooking the Han River. People weren't dueling to kill one another up here, but they did have a very rigid scoring system going on that was going to be tricky to dent. We stood at the back of the top of the building where Achi had ported us. There were at least 50 people, young students, high school students, young Korean men in office shirts with the sleeves rolled up as they spent their lunch break boosting their scores on the score charts. There were all kinds of people here who didn't seem to fit. In the back, several elderly women were seated. A shirtless man I'd have assumed was homeless was coaching two younger boys in how to attack and defend basic psionic attacks. Learning that this place existed was great, but Achi wasn't as interested in the display of useless dueling. She invited me and Andrew to visit their school before we left South Korea if we wanted, and then stepped out, taking the translation orb with her. Looks like we're on our own from here, Andrew said. You go ahead, I'll watch, I said. This is your thing, Elgar, he remarked, snorting. You're not afraid of losing, are you? No, it's the other thing, I said, watching two kids a little older than me but younger than Andrew approach us. They were from one of the private schools in Seoul. They had taken off their blazers and had slung them over their shoulders. Hello, one of them bowed, fighting back a smile. Yeah, we're Americans, Andrew said, but we don't speak Korean very well yet. Ah, oh, that is funny, the boy said. We speak English okay, but you don't learn our language? Forgive my friend, the boy next to the first said. He really want to fight you. I am Hyun Kyon, and this is Do Hwan. I'm happy to oblige, if you're into pain and suffering. Andrew cracked his knuckles. We're trying to find someone named Yi Min Hee, I said. You wouldn't be able to point us in the right direction, could you? Hyun and Do exchanged a confused look before smiling at us. We just here to fight, Do said. It was clear we weren't going to get off this building without facing off with a few of the locals. It's not that I don't like dueling. I do. I really do. But I had some specialty skills that no one else had. Andrew, Harriet, Bucky, Mozart, and I had spent the better part of the last semester of school honing our dueling skills and getting me trained up to their level. They were all brutal, especially Mozart. The rules to our version of dueling is that each participant conjures a bubble shield. That's a person's base lifeline of magical defense before they're mortal and subject to the full effect of the magical elements during a duel. It blocks magical attacks, but not physical ones. Once a person exhausts their bubble shield, they will either die after the next attack, or the duel will end with the person who retained their shield with the win. While both shields are intact during the duel, the contestants are free to summon their shields and magical attacks at will. We split off into pairs, Andrew and Hyun facing one another while I was to fight Do. You ready? Do grinned at me as he cast his bubble shield. You bet, I said, casting mine. 
Do took a martial arts stance, right fist over his right shoulder with his left arm and palm outstretched and flat above his bent left knee. He wasn't the only one who knew a thing or two about martial arts. Last year I had to learn my fair share of speedy off-the-cuff physical combat moves. Magical duels are different from martial arts duels, though. I saw Dole make the motion of a lightning spell. I conjured a heart-shaped wood shield to cancel out the element as a bolt of lightning jarred the surface of my shield cover. Usually it was a simple lightning strike, but Doe kept a constant burst of lightning sustained as my shield smoldered to ash. My bubble shield began to spark. Pull! I shouted, calling the attention of everyone on the rooftop as my fireball dissipated upon a flat water wall Doe had pulled up. These kids were good. I hadn't seen Andrew's fight, but I saw him heave Hyun across the rooftop as Doe and I clashed in an exchange of physical blows. I kept him at bay with one hand as I charged my signature shadow bomb. When I planted it, Doe had barely pulled up a holy shield that shined brilliantly as my shadow bomb was consumed by holy light. When Doe threw his arms aside to dismiss the holy shield, I fired a water cannon from between my pressed wrists that would have knocked any normal person off the building. I was fast enough to turn as Doe poured it to my side and fired a series of jabs and kicks that I fended off until I grabbed a claw of his stomach with an instant ice grip. His bubble shield crackled but his knee came up to my chin so hard that I cartwheeled backward, landing directly on my chest. Usually if you lose your stance, it halts the battle briefly. This was enough for everyone on the roof to begin clapping as Doe stood across from me at the ready, an irritating smirk on his face. I got up and backed into Andrew. His nose was bloodied and his cheek bludgeoned. Across from him was Hyun with a raised fist that was smeared with Andrew's blood, but he didn't look much better as he had a well black eye and a big scrape that tore through his slacks. Like I said, Bubble Shield cancels out magical damage, but you can still take physical damage from the ground or from physical attacks. Everyone was still cheering, so I couldn't tell if this was going well or poorly for us. I sent some holy light through my own body to heal the scrapes and cuts, but I heard Andrew call his own holy spell and nothing happened. I looked over to see him with his hand raised, but his wounds remained. His open hand curled into a frustrated fist as he charged Hyun. Doe and I were entranced by their instant fight. If you've never watched a small person wear down a bigger person punch by punch, it's pretty impressive. But Andrew was a juggernaut. A berserker. That's where his power lay. After a series of punches in the gut through his defensive stance, Andrew took a deep breath, growing twice his size in an instant. Hyun had time to register that his attacks were useless before Andrew's massive fist sent Hyun's entire form spiraling to the rooftop of the building. Andrew lumbered toward Hyun's form as he tried to push himself up. I poured it in front of Andrew with my hand raised, finding myself looking up at the lumbering hulk of my friend whose eyes had gone pure red. Other times Andrew had lost control like this, he had always pulled himself back, but he didn't stop on this occasion. He grabbed my shirt and pushed me aside. I poured it back in front of him and fired my water cannon that didn't knock him off his feet as I hoped it would. Apparently, growing twice the size of a normal human being gives you additional weight as well. He took my shoulder in one hand and drew back his hammer of a fist. One of the elderly women who had been standing at the back of the rooftop appeared next to him and touched Andrew's arm. She said something I couldn't understand and Andrew Sibelius deflated and fell down like a sack of potatoes, sucking in deep, snoring gulps like this was the first time he'd ever slept in his life. I helped Hyun to his feet. Sorry about that. He can get really powerful and dangerous. Hyun held a hand to his stomach as he continued to heal his broken ribs. If Hyun had been a mortal and not a skilled psionic, he would have probably died from the damage Andrew had inflicted. It's okay, he nodded. I was not expecting. Yeah, it's becoming a bit of a problem, I said. Good match, Doe held out his hand to me. You too, I said, shaking his hand and scratching the back of my head. Pretty sure you won that one, though. Still fair, shrugged Doe. 
Your friend seems to have won his. We both looked down at Andrew as he bellowed through his sleep. I want to help your friend, said the old Korean woman who had put Andrew to sleep. She wore a pink scarf, a puffy dark green coat, and a long black skirt that went down to her calves above her flower slippers. The wind caught a few strands of her gray hair as she held out her hand. It was good to meet you guys. We'll check you later. I nodded and bowed to Hyun and Do. They both waved as I grabbed Andrew's shoulder and took the old woman's hand. We poured it to the grassy courtyard of an old-style Korean estate. I took in the heavy smell of the sea and salt. Are we still in Seoul? I asked her. Begodo, island southwest of Incheon. She stepped forward and grabbed her cane from the inner wall of the monastery. Andrew was still snoring and it was highly disruptive. Dozens of Korean girls of varying ages watched from around corners and through the arched windows, peering around the cherry blossom trees budding pink flowers in the morning light. The sky overhead was overcast and a cool wind blew through the island. Where is this place? I asked. This is the house of Yi Min Hee, the chosen one and most powerful mudong in existence. I am her grandmother. You may call me An. The old woman turned and met my eyes. Before you say anything, I think you should meet my granddaughter. Should I wake him? I thumbed over my shoulder as An walked past me and climbed the stairs. No? I left Andrew and followed On up the steps. We walked down a long hall corridor between tall archways. The windows of the buildings were made of paper. As the wind channeled between the halls of the great house, the paper rustled in the window frames. I heard chanting coming from the different rooms we passed and a chorus of drums hammering a consistent rhythm that was designed to entrance the consciousness. Having specialized in alterations last year, I had a high resistance to basic alterations and chantments. From my knowledge of the Mudong School of Magic, it was a prestige class combination of alterations and nature magic, like that of a shaman or spirit healer. However, much like the shaman, the Mudong were revered in old Korean traditions as powerful spellcasters with a considerable amount of necromancer dark energy at their disposal. If I was to believe anything I'd read, it was that these people weren't just dangerous, they also had the power to change fortune into disaster via the eastern demons of their own alternate universes and spirit worlds. We descended a stairwell and walked down a path as it began to sprinkle outside. Korean pine trees swayed in the wind of the island as the drumming hammered from the monastery cloister behind us. We approached a lonesome meditation hall upon a hill overlooking the sea. If not for the green and pink rooftop color, one might think that it was independent of the estate altogether. The terracotta plate-roofed building stood like a shadow against the gray clouds above. I could still hear the drummers practicing, but the sound was drowned out by the crashing of the waves on the rocks below the cliff. We climbed the steps and took off our shoes before entering through the sliding red wooden door of the chamber. The wooden steps descended to a circular marble cavern built into the cliff ledge with windows peering out to the sea carved into the rounded walls. In the center of the platform, a beautiful girl of 17 with long black hair wearing pajama pants and a dark gray t-shirt was suspended within a field of black energy. All around her, light could not exist. It was the strangest state of necromancy I had ever witnessed, even having studied with Hollandor for six months the previous year. What now? I asked. You tell me, said An. She went into this state two years ago. Summoning you is the first action I've seen since it began. She's never moved, never eaten, never gone to the bathroom? In two years? And calling me is the only thing she's done? I asked. An nodded, a little hesitantly. Nothing anyone has tried can withdraw her from this state of dark meditation. I'm not sure what she thought you might be able to do, 
but it's clear she's gone to great lengths to bring you here. I stared at Emin He. She was enchantingly beautiful with soft skin and a face that had a little of her grandmother's stubborn complexion mixed in. Well, you went through all that trouble, attacking me with an earth demon, putting my father into a coma, getting me and my friend beaten up so your grandmother could win a few bets. What is I can do to help you? I spread my hands in question. She didn't move. Her eyes were closed, but I could see that she was dreaming from the movement beneath her eyelids. As I mentioned before, Han said after a long while of silence, she can't speak. All right, looks like I'm going in the old-fashioned way. I dropped into seated meditation before the girl. I began my Vipassana breathing techniques before moving into body scanning. The synchronicity of my mind to body connected slowly that morning. It always does when you need it quickest. On eventually had to leave us as I continued in seated meditation. After a time of feeling nothing, I realized that even he wasn't letting me in. I was fully present in spirit, mind, and body, but she had me locked out. This was irritating because if I could access her mind, she would probably have a timeless world running behind the scenes. Whatever she was doing in there, I mulled for a few minutes, and then I had it. My eyes opened before I got up and jogged back through the estate to the courtyard where we poured it in. A ceremony of choral chanting had replaced the drums filling the halls of the monastery. I found Andrew leaning against the wall, waiting for me to finish my business so we could leave. Come on, I need your help, I said. Andrew, looking extra groggy, shrugged and followed me back through the monastery and between the trees to the circular platform beneath the house on the hillside where Emin He was waiting. All of us psionics are trained to be able to create a timeless world, but it's harder for some than others. Unfortunately, Andrew was one of those people who found it to be a difficult practice to perform regularly. It took us a full hour to get Andrew's mind calm enough to finally create a group timeless world where our mind's image projected our consciousnesses into a world of our making. Geez, took you long enough, I said as Andrew and I stood next to our meditating forms in the hall before E. Min He's suspended figure. Sorry, Purcell tells us meditation opens us up to demonic possession, Andrew said. And you believe that, knowing all you know and being able to do the things we can do, I asked. I don't know what to believe anymore, Andrew said. A second later, a third person appeared next to us. E. Min He, eyes open and face bright, gave us a quick bow. She wore the same pajama pants and t-shirt combination that she wore in the real world. Can you see me? Yeah, we can see you, I said. I don't believe we've been formally introduced. My name is Elgar King and this is... The most ridiculous expression was fixed within Andrew's face and eyes as he gaped at Emin He. Andrew Sibelius. Hey Andrew, I snapped and got his attention. I gave him a silent, protesting, open gesture with my arms. Andrew Sibelius. Andrew stood tall and bowed to Emin He. You guys can call me Minnie. She fought back laughter as Andrew's face went crimson. So, I said, we've done a lot to get here. You're the King Elgar, Minnie interrupted, taking an awkward step closer to me. I thought you would be taller. Wait, King Elgar? I asked, stepping back. I'm nobody's king. He doesn't know, Andrew interjected. He hasn't started a second year, so he wouldn't know what you're talking about. Okay, I'm really confused, I said to Andrew and Minnie. What's going on? Minnie opened the conical display from her palm that was just like mine to show me a barrage of articles and text in Hangul and in English, praising me as some kind of savior and king for single-handedly saving the Eternium from the wrath of a vengeful demon at the gates of hell. First, I was shocked, but then I was angry. There was no mention of how my friends helped me get that far, and no mention of Wayland Melkor, or Harriet at all. I didn't deserve that much credit when I was just short of pissing myself when it happened, and I certainly didn't deserve king. Andrew sighed. 
It's a misunderstanding because your last name is King. Last and first names in Korea are switched. It was a mistake that went viral on our side of the pond as well. We chose not to tell you so you wouldn't get a fat head from all the fame and glory. Jeez, are you serious? I stared at him. But I didn't do all that alone. Yeah, no crap, but you were still the front man in the assault. Without you, none of it could have happened. I'm not a king, just Elgar, I tried, but Minnie didn't seem to care. She was still grinning from ear to ear as she had me sign a notebook from her inventory. Thank you for coming at my request. I would not have gone to this much trouble except that I need your help, both of you. She closed her notebook and placed it back in her inventory. Okay, we're listening, I crossed my arms. You have heard of the Great Old One, have you not? Minnie asked. I thought for a few seconds. That's kind of vague in the English language, I said. We have a lot of references to things like that. No, Elgar. The Great Old One. Minnie narrowed her eyes on mine, and I knew that there was no beating around the bush. She meant the Great Old One. The fabled, horrible, deep-sea monstrosity that swims beneath the deepest oceans of the oldest realms. The Great Cthulhu. It was madness to look upon the beast as a mere mortal, but to feel his gaze is to know that there is true evil outside of reality. Absolute darkness that stands outside of time and stretches beyond all realms. He is about to awaken. Chapter 3 Permission Over Forgiveness As it turns out, keeping Cthulhu at bay is one of the most important jobs for the necromancer community, which was currently me. On a 300-year summer solstice pattern, Cthulhu will rouse from his slumber to perform a set number of tasks, beginning with making sure accommodations are made for his family, then personal leisurely feeding time, and finally he will consider any diplomatic requests that are made by those who can make the first two processes simpler. He was a complex and yet simple creature. However, if one were to obstruct Cthulhu in those processes, things might get messy for all realms connected to Relay, and that included Earth from Cthulhu's entrance through the fold in reality in the Mariana Trench at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. The big problem is that 300 years ago, during the Last Awakening, there was an abundance of necromancers. But some religious hustler had the entire necromancer field declared an abomination, which is why I was in such hot water with the holy community for even being alive. Now that Cthulhu was getting ready to come back, there was only one known necromancer floating around to keep the Ancient One at bay. I'll be honest, I was terrified of Cthulhu. It would have been nice if Hollendorf could have taken care of that in the early 20th century, that way I could either be a better necromancer or hopefully be dead in 300 years. Currently, said Minnie, I am using all of my power to keep Cthulhu at rest, but it's not my specialization and it's not my field. I became a Mudong because I wanted to heal people on a spiritual level. I was not meant to be the buffer between Cthulhu and the Eternium. This is why it was so important that I meet with you at all cost. Way to pass the buck to me. How am I supposed to figure out how to stop that thing? I asked. You can memorize the ritual in an afternoon, but it's your intention that will define Cthulhu's actions and responses. It's not you that's difficult, King Elgar, said Minnie. You can only lull him to sleep after he's fed, but requests must be made during his final hour of feeding. This process requires a second prestige shadowcaster known as a Dreadnought. The Dreadnought is needed as the power sink to control Cthulhu's feeding. Andrew laughed, shaking his head. Is that what this is about? You must have missed the memo because I failed paladin training. I'm no paladin. I'm fully aware of your circumstance, Minnie said in a monotone voice. And I confess that I had a hand in the showmanship that led to your title of disqualification. However, the rite was finished. Delanova completed the ceremony and you were endowed with paladinship. 
I had a duplicate suit of plate mail created with Hellsteel to match the Paladin Initiate's armor, which was then replaced so it would seem as though you were not holy, but it was quite the opposite. Andrew balled his fists and narrowed his eyes. Why? he yelled through gritted teeth. You are pure of heart and pure of mind, but you doubt deep down. You asked why I sabotaged your ceremony. Because you were meant to be so much more, Andrew Sibelius. What does a paladin have to do with the dreadnought? I asked, still confused. Dreadnought is a paladin gone bad. What happens when you put your discipline in dark magic instead of light magic, Andrew said. Not only that, said Minnie, but a dreadnought can only be a juggernaut psionic. That is the rare prerequisite that a paladin gone astray must have in order to become a dreadnought. A dreadnought is required to control Cthulhu. Are you getting the picture yet, Andrew? Minnie asked. Yeah, but what if I don't want to be a dreadnought? Andrew asked. You said yourself that I really did pass my paladin training. Just as Elgar is the last necromancer, you are the last dreadnought, Andrew. It's not a question, it's your destiny. There is no time to find another, if such a psionic even exists in the Eternium at present. While all this stuff is happening, is there any way I can get my father to wake up from his coma? I asked. Many pace before us. Your father's fate is tied to mine and Cthulhu's. I can't control the magic that's drawn him into this. I can say, in the future, if you're given an invitation by a powerful group of psionics, I would do everything in my power to appease their order of time. That made me angry. You sent the invitation, which means your magic caused him to be the victim. That makes you responsible, not me. I can't tell the Queen of England to come meet me at my house in three days lest some horrible curse be visited upon her family and expect her to actually show up. But you would if you had no other choice. I'm sorry about your dad. We can solve everyone's problems by working together, Minnie said. You're stuck in stasis, what can you possibly do to help us? I asked. Once Cthulhu is awake, I should be free, said Minnie. I'm going to try bonding my Midas to yours, Andrew, since your network is unlocked. If it works, we should be able to communicate. Suppose we do help you. What kind of hoops are we going to have to jump through in order to even get Cthulhu to listen to us? Andrew asked. Elgar will be performing the summoning ritual while Cthulhu's attention is focused on you and the channeling capsule. You won't be allowed to look upon Cthulhu during the ritual, so that's the capsule's purpose. Before any of that, we need to acquire a few rare items before moving forward. Ah, here come the stipulations. I shook my head, bracing myself for the worst. Solomon's cloak. She pressed her index fingers together and count while I cringed internally. The crown of Odysseus. I bit my knuckle. And the staff of Endor. Andrew laughed. There's no way. Even if you could somehow get those other items, the Staff of Endor is locked in a Xenoglass case in the Museum of Artifacts in Gramberg. We'd never get out alive, even if we could break the glass. Leave the logistics to me, Minnie grinned, tapping her temple. This seems like a lot of trouble just to keep Cthulhu at bay for another 300 years, I said. Those artifacts belong to the Necromancer community, along with a horde of other rare items that shouldn't be sequestered to the Vatican, said Minnie. To be fair, the cloak and the crown should be easy to find. Easy to find, said Andrew, just like the staff of Endor, but not easy to obtain. Are you scared? Minnie gave him a quizzical look. Me? Andrew thumbed at his chest. Yes, absolutely. You want me on the ground floor of a Cthulhu summoning ring as little more than bait. That's after we've become the world's most infamous psionic thieves or die trying. What you're asking of two people is impossible. You're right. This quest is impossible, but what good is being a psionic if you can't perform the impossible? Minnie asked. We have to try, I said, glancing at Andrew. He rolled his eyes and crossed his arms. We need the crown first, said Minnie, which is currently in a collector's personal museum inside of his house in Malibu, Florida. 
It's held by a number of mortal security defenses, but I don't think you'll have any trouble getting in or out. The cloak is a little harder because it was lost 150 years ago. There's only 11 different universes where it could be hiding, I said sarcastically. But, Minnie continued, I have a good idea where it might be. However, I'll need you to bring me the crown first. At least we have a starting place, Andrew said. Got any more information on this Malibu collector guy? The collector's name is Norman Bradley, said Minnie. The crown is in Malibu, but he owns the Bradley Museum in Los Angeles. The crown of Odysseus supposedly allows the user to track other artifacts, which is why Norman was able to make such a large collection of lost psionic items. That being common knowledge, you should be careful even though he's immortal. He obviously knows a few things that have kept other treasure hunters and psionics from stealing the crown from him. We can hang out at my parents' house in LA while we try to gather more information, Andrew said. Sounds good. I turned to Minnie. Is there anything else you need to tell us before we leave? Did you really kill and capture Riptos in the Hell Sword? Minnie asked me. Not on my own like it says in those articles. I mean, I did defeat and capture Riptos on my own, I stammered, my face going red as Andrew mopped his forehead with his big hand next to me. But a lot of people fought to give me that opportunity, including my friend Harriet. I'm just saying, just like King Sejong didn't invent Hangul alone, I didn't battle my way into hell and defeat Riptos on my own. I think I understand, Minnie grinned, still fascinated by me. Really, I'm just a normal, average... I trailed off without being able to think of any way to finish. We really need to go. Andrew broke the awkward silence. It was good to meet you. Once I'm free, I'll add you as a friend on Magebook and follow you on Flutter, Minnie said. I knew a little of what those were at the time, and ignorance is bliss. If I had any idea of the civil war that was going on between psionics politically and socially throughout their social media, I would have opted to avoid connecting altogether in the coming months. Minnie was able to directly synchronize her Midas with Andrew's. It's a feature that the mages of the Seven Suns programmed into the Midas Stone in case psionics somehow found themselves beyond the scope of the universes. Sometimes we get stuck in some hairy situations, so if two Midas Stones can connect physically, they should be able to communicate via direct sync. We bowed to many, said our final goodbyes, and left the timeless world. The air was cool and the world significantly more vivid as we opened our eyes. We ported to Andrew's house. Andrew and I appeared within the empty kitchen of Andrew's parents' nice two-story mansion-style home in Beverly Hills. Ever been to Malibu? I asked. I live over there, said Andrew. But we can't go anywhere until we figure out where Norman Bradley's going. We can visit the museum where someone ought to be able to point us in the right direction. I'll check it on the map. We found Andrew's father, who was supposedly a tinkerer. His name was Michael Sibelius, and he must have been the same height as his 17-year-old son with the same larger bones. I thought he was just a quiet person, but if you got him going, he'd talk for hours about some of the most profoundly deep philosophical thoughts. He sat outside on the upper patio on the second story of the big house. He was reclined in an ugly yellow lazy chair that looked new even though I could tell it had been outside for years. On the circular table next to him was a broken wind chime that lay like a dead jellyfish across the marble surface. I thought Andrew's dad was staring at it as if trying to will it to hang itself back up again, but he looked to us, his face unshaven for a few days. Did you know that the egg of a hummingbird is 1,500 times heavier than a poppy seed? He looked up at Andrew from his seat. That's 1,500 poppy seeds it would take to equal the weight of something smaller and lighter than a penny. But poppy seeds weigh like nothing, I said. Michael Sibelius grinned, knowing something that I didn't. Know anybody named Norman Bradley? Andrew asked. Not in my experience, his father said, bringing up his Midas and flicking through a list of contacts before asking it to run a search through his Midas history for the name. It turned up an esoteric news article from June 4th, 1996. A man named Norman Bradley was acquitted for manslaughter. 
the case was dismissed as self-defense in the privacy of his own home via a .30-06 Winchester Model 70 hunting rifle. Norman was already known as a collector of rare items in Los Angeles, having opened his collections to the public in his museum only two years prior. Other than that and a 22-year-old photo of the guy, the article didn't give us any new information. Well, we know he'll be armed, but that's no problem, I shrugged. Our base bubble shield protects us from gunfire and bullets. Unless we're being pummeled by heavy-caliber rapid-fire artillery, most situations where we can be shot are more irritating because of the chaos that ensues after a shooting. As psionics, we eventually learn a number of crowd-controlling spells that can both calm the authorities throughout most civil and hostile worlds as well as pacify fearful civilians. Gunfire sends everybody into panic and running in all directions. Sounds like you boys are on the trail, Michael said. I miss the trail. Used to be I live for the trail, but somewhere along the way, life bucks you off and you just can't get back up and do it again. So you set up home and let life come to you. I wonder what it's like to retire. I looked up at the patio ceiling against the perfect California blue sky and thought, unable to picture it. Maybe I'll sit down at the end and write it all down or something. Come on, Andrew. Life's waiting and she's probably got friends at the club. That rewarded me an awkward look. Open-minded as they may be, Michael, his wife, and Andrew's two sisters were all holy psionics, meaning that I needed to be careful about my rhetoric. At least Andrew knew his way around town. He ported me to a Thai restaurant not far from the museum's location and we went from there. I was glad they lifted my group port ban at the end of my first year. During my first year, my friends had to make me go the long way if we needed to meet somewhere I'd never been. The school wanted us to focus on solo questing during the first year so we could gather locations naturally rather than have a group of friends rush you to all the most common locations for questing. The museum was on the corner of Hill Street and West Olympic Boulevard. We didn't even have to go inside the museum. The unmistakable figure of Norman Bradley descended the steps in a hurry. His hair was gray, but his face hadn't changed a bit in 20 years. He got into an Audi S8 sedan that was parked in a no-parking zone directly in front of the museum. The building featured an all-glass front that allowed passers-by to witness a giant brass wall engraved with Zeus on the left as a burly, hulking father figure. On the right side of the entrance was Heracles, wielding an enormous hammer offhandedly and looking over his shoulder. Norman drove off quickly, cutting off a few cars in order to make a difficult left turn. They beeped and flipped him off, but he made the yellow light in spite of a truck that was wiser than to continue through the oncoming adjacent lane. A problem for a mortal, but we port-jumped after him while keeping track of his license plate. He went to an expensive studio apartment building where he picked up a woman with sleek brown hair who looked like a supermodel before zipping onto the freeway, which proved to be a little more difficult for us as pedestrians weren't allowed to walk on the freeways. Andrew grabbed my shoulder and ported me to the tire store along the freeway ahead. And then to the Dunkin' Donuts. Where we watched the Audi speed by on the still visible barrier lined freeway lines. Keeping hold of my arm, Andrew ported us to a cheap Chinese buffet place called the Golden Star. Then to a pool cleaning store. To our good fortune, Norman pulled off and into a Hilton hotel where he and the model disappeared within for hours. Hey, no one said detective work was entertaining. At this point, we could have just had a mortal look up his house on the internet or something, I said. I looked everywhere for his address, said Andrew. Other than that it's in Malibu, we have no way of knowing which house is his. You could get in the trunk of his car and then port back and then port me, I said. I'm too heavy, Andrew shook his head. They'd know someone else was in the car. You're pretty light. Why don't you get into the trunk and port back and pick me up? Whatever, I said and approached Norman's car. Yolala. I spoke aloud and the trunk of the Audi popped open. Of course, the alarm went off, but I climbed in anyway. The trunk was really small, but I wasn't that big, so I curled inside. I'll be here. See you when I see you, Andrew said, closing the trunk on me. 
A few minutes later, the car alarm stopped. It felt like I had to wait a really long time before Norman and his girl came back from the hotel. After a long time, they got back into the car, returned to the girl's apartment, I'm assuming because the passenger door opened and closed while Norman bid her farewell before the car rolled into motion and zipped onto the freeway. From there, we traveled for about 20 minutes, Norman speeding in and out of traffic between semi-trucks and slow drivers. After some meandering roads that went uphill, the Audi finally came to a stop and I heard Norman get out. His footsteps crunched on gravel and disappeared as he stepped off the driveway. I waited about five minutes before trying to make my escape. This proved to be more difficult as there was no escape handle and the spell wasn't working from the inside. I also couldn't really move well enough to see what I was doing. My Midas provided a dim purple light, but nothing told me that I could get out of this trunk without being able to gain access to the lock. As claustrophobia began to set in, I started to panic. It must have been pretty horrifying to view from outside, a simple Audi sitting on the driveway, and then the trunk exploding open. My bubble shield absorbed everything as I climbed out. Of course, the gas tank is just below the trunk, so the whole car erupted in flame around me. It didn't even drop my bubble shield a single percent. I thought my cover was blown, but I stood on a long, empty driveway out in the hills of Malibu. No one in the house heard anything as the pounding of hip-hop music from the manor nearby thrummed over the crackle of flames from the car. It smelled awful, the burning tires. I poured at a safe distance from the house into the hills nearby where I could still hear the music. Someone did eventually notice that Norman's car was on fire, but no one was around. I ported back and returned to the estate with Andrew. Before realizing that I was hungry. We had waited about five hours for Norman at that hotel, and the drive had taken an additional 45 minutes. Thanks to summer days, it wouldn't get completely dark for another few hours. How should we proceed? Andrew asked as the two of us peered at the big mansion that housed Norman Bradley's private collection of artifacts and collections. Unlike most situations, for this circumstance I had a plan. Being able to read an endless number of books in my spare time, I had studied a book on socializing and speech making. All of this requires creating an extroverted personality as a medium through which a person can become larger than life. It's the personality of the salesman, the gift of gab, the person who does the speaking and interviewing. All of this personality ties into the same need, to get what you want. What did I want? The crown of Odysseus, which was in the house and collection of a man who might have traps guarding it. But I didn't need to steal the crown because I didn't even want it. Unless you're wearing armor, who thinks wearing a crown is cool? Imagine going to school and seeing a kid wearing a crown. You and the rest of your classmates wouldn't think he was a king, he'd think he was a pretentious a-hole. As the plan formulated in my mind, I realized I was going to do something completely against the rules of being a psionic. Many had mentioned, concerning my summoning of the Queen of England for a parlay, that I would make it happen if I had no other choice. This needed to be done and the fastest route was the most direct. No, I wasn't going to steal the stupid crown, I was going to walk right up to Norman Bradley and ask him for it. Stay here, I said. It'll be easier if I go alone. What's the plan? Andrew asked. I'm gonna go get the crown, I said. I bypassed the meandering driveway up the hill and ported to the front door of his mansion. Appearing beneath the columns, I could hear the trickle of some manufactured creek nearby. Norman Bradley's bodyguard rounded the corner. He was a bald man with massive forearms wearing a gray shirt that looked a size too small for him. He saw me and stopped. This is private property. No kids allowed. I need to talk to Norman Bradley and you're going to take me to him, I said. No way, kid. He shook his head and advanced on me. I ported behind him. You're going to take me to Norman Bradley right now. He turned, curling his fingers into a fist. I ported a safe distance behind him on the front foyer so he could realize I needed an audience, but I wasn't interested in doing it by force. 
Porting is the easiest way to confuse mortals, even though it's supposed to be illegal to do in front of them. The bodyguard eventually took me to meet Norman, who had just gotten off the phone with his insurance agent about his exploded car. Norman, this kid says he needs to talk to you, the bodyguard said in his deep baritone. Norman looked exasperated that this situation was even unfolding. A teenager had never been on his property and the implication foreshadowed allegations that he couldn't afford to deal with. As a kid, you have no idea why adults don't like you. As an adult, you know teenagers are dangerous because they can get you into all kinds of trouble without understanding those consequences. Norman was a strong believer in this line of thinking, so had declined to have or adopt children of his own. Norman had exchanged his casual dress wear for a pair of yellow and gray swim trunks that he wore as he sat in the jacuzzi. I stood at the edge of the pool in my Converse shoes, jeans, and gray t-shirt. I had my arms crossed and didn't appear to want to be there any more than anyone else wanted me there. Parker, I need you to take this kid and escort him off the premises immediately, he said. Can't, sir, Parker, the bodyguard, said. Mr. Bradley, I need to borrow the crown of Odysseus, I interjected. A wash of emotions crossed Norman Bradley's face within about five seconds. First there was surprise, then there was anger, then there was humor, and then he shook his head, chuckling. Who is this kid? He looked up to Parker. Don't know, just said he needed to talk to you, Parker said. I could have stolen the stupid crown, I said, but I didn't feel like putting in the effort. After I'm done, whether you let me have it now or not, I am and was planning to bring it back, I said. Norman already had a few drinks in him, so he just stared at me in confusion for what felt like a long time. What? Hold on. He massaged his forehead with his eyes closed. You want to borrow the rarest item from my collection for an unstated period of time and are threatening to steal it if I don't give it to you. No, I'm taking the crown today, or you'll die, I shrugged. One way or the other, there's no choice here. I'm just asking to borrow it first because I think Mr. Parker is pretty cool, and I don't have any beef with you. I'll bring it back after I'm done, I swear. I don't even want the stupid thing. But... Norman had to ignore the vast weight of what I had just told him in order to power on. If you were me, would you let me borrow the crown? If I knew that the fate of our world rested upon the decision, most definitely, I said. But I can't know that for sure. All I have is your word. Norman spread his hands in protest. Right, um, let's see here. I looked in my inventory, which Norman and Parker couldn't see, but did see me withdraw an 1883 Morgan silver dollar coin that my elemental teacher, Stefan Mahler, had given me and the rest of the students on the last day of class. It was virtually worthless other than currency on Earth, which in the spectrum of 11 universes, Earth is a really dinky pit stop of all places to see. Norman's eyes lit up as he splashed out of the jacuzzi to look at the coin in the fluorescent light that lit the outdoor pool. Where on earth did you get this, and why do you of all people have it hiding up your sleeve? It was a gift from my teacher, I said. Let me borrow the crown for, I don't know, a week? And it's yours. Norman tossed the Morgan dollar back to me. Cool coin, kid, but the crown's worth more, so you can understand why I can't just loan it out. Say a movie director came and knocked on my door, says he wants to borrow one of my authentic hoplite swords for a scene. Even if he had a million dollars to pay, I wouldn't let him touch one of my artifacts. It's not about money, it's about history. My job is to preserve history at all cost. You keep talking like you have a choice, I said. I don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. I pocketed the coin as Parker unrolled his arms as if he was going to do something. Norman took a step back. This is my last peaceful offer. Loan me the crown or I will burn your life to the ground. I conjured a fireball that hovered over the palm of my hand. You got it? Andrew asked as I returned to meet with him 20 minutes after disappearing. Yep, easy as pie, I said as we ported back to the Mudong Academy.
I might have been hit with what would amount to 120,000 US dollars worth of fines for my blatant display of magic to the mortal public after an investigation unraveled my questionable actions, but once I had the crown, I epopsied Norman and Parker. Knowing that, you'd think we could have just made Norman forget about the crown, but Norman had owned it for much of his adult life. He had a lot of memories that would need to be explained. Theoretically, a powerful psionic, particularly Alteration's master, could go in and reprogram the mind of someone else to forget a former significant other or bad experience. However, attempts have not been successful in suppressing the residual underlying subconscious experience, meaning that the host will often remember through dreams or be reminded of forgotten experiences when seeing a particular landscape, personal item, or even color scheme. In the end, I made Parker and Norman remember me but edited out my magical contributions and made Norman remember agreeing to my proposal. It would fall apart quickly, the proposal part, if anyone asked why on earth he would break character and loan a strange kid one of his most valuable artifacts. I hoped to be finished and have it back in his hands before that happened. Andrew and I got back into my timeless world and met with Minnie. She looked just as excited to see us as she did last time. I guess us being her only visitors in God knows how long made her happy to see anyone. Did you find it? Minnie asked. Yes, we did. I drew from my inventory the bronze circlet of metal that crowned the forehead and had sharp points to the northeast, west, and south. It was simple, yet light, and also powerful. I had always assumed Odysseus could be a bit pompous at times, but humbler in his older age. It's hard to gauge the quality of his character, even though the hope of seeing his family at the end of his long voyage didn't sway him from adultering with countless women and goddesses along the way. This piece of equipment suggested a modest leader who could be expected to respond to the threat of battle at a moment's notice. I began to regret my decision to return it to Norman when Minnie plucked it from my grasp. The older the magic, the more powerful the corruption, she said, reading my expression. Let's see where Solomon's cloak might be hiding. She slipped the crown over her head and dropped into meditation position. It didn't take her long to get back up and remove the crown and hand it back to me. Anything? I asked. Yes, but you two aren't going to like it. She took a deep breath, trying to figure out how to approach an explanation. I think this is going to be harder than the Staff of Endor. Chapter 4 The Cowatora del Grande Andrew and I got off the tiny airplane that had carried us and mostly cargo from Christchurch International Airport in New Zealand to Mangareva in the Pitcairn Islands. We had to hurry to catch a ferry ship en route for Adamstown Island where we were to meet a retired psionic who would be able to help us find our target. The sky was cerulean blue and it had started to really feel like summer as Andrew and I sat with our arms slumped on the rails of the ferry. The sun was warm, the water was clear, and the air was fresh. You know, this is a Harriet quest, Andrew said after a long period of silence. Where do the nature students go in the summers? I asked. They won't tell us, probably on vacation, Andrew took a deep breath. Why did you come and meet me at my house? I glanced at him out of the corner of my eye. Andrew rested his chin on his big arms and thought as the cerulean waves thundered all around us. You're the only person I know who's been shunned by everyone. I have so many holy friends, but I can't even look at them anymore. I think... I think I'm looking for guidance. From me? I asked skeptically. Not really from you, but whatever this quest is that we're on has drawn me as much as it's drawn you, Andrew said. At least your dad is okay, I said solemnly. Yeah, right. He looked down at the waves that were being split by the ferry as we went. Feels like everything in my life is a lie. The whole holy field feels like a waste of time. I wouldn't say it's a waste of time, I said. But it is, said Andrew. We memorize all these texts that talk about this guy who's always hidden. He never speaks with us directly, but has all these vessels through which we're supposed to interpret some vague message that seems to be in the eye of the beholder. 
What kind of philosophy and way of life is that? If God wants me to be a paladin, then why doesn't he part the skies and give me a message I can work with? I don't think God is what we think he or it is, I said, not wanting to get too deep into religious territory. If there is a man or a figure that you can call God, I don't think Earth and its inhabitants are within his range of focus. Or maybe all this madness is entertainment for him and his kind. All the strife on this planet is laughable from a cosmic perspective. There's a heaven and a hell. That means that there has to be a god and a devil, Andrew rationalized. Why? I asked. Remember the Wizard of Oz? Everyone was so terrified of the wizard, but in the end, he was nothing more than a mortal man hiding behind his contraptions. He had everyone fooled with the idea of his higher existence that gave him power. Just because there's a place called heaven and a place called hell doesn't mean there's necessarily a god and a devil. Remember Riptos? Why would any leader wait an eternity for the release of his commander before taking action? If the devil exists, let him come face us himself. In that case, they're at our mercy, Andrew said. They need us, and they know it. That was a really fun trip, traveling out to Adamstown Island. Sometimes you just need to disappear from the world for a few days. There's nothing quite like watching the waves ebb and flow against the sky as the sun burns out on the horizon, taking its warmth with it only to leave the cold, salty sea wind in its wake. Once Andrew and I arrived on the island, we waited at the address of Marvin Palmer. He had built a modest single-story house for himself here in this isolated island village. Marvin had gone sailing and was on his return as the twilight sky began to sprout twinkling stars. Obviously, he had been using magic to power his sailboat as the sail was askew and flapping in the wind, but the boat powered forward regardless. Once he was close enough, Andrew and I poured it onto the deck. Marvin jumped. Jesus, you scared the crap out of me! He had a long, unkempt reddish-gray beard and green eyes within a face that had spent far too much time in thought as the creases in his tan, leathery skin wrinkled. Sorry to startle you, I said. My name is Elgar, and this is my friend Andrew. King Elgar? Marvin cocked his brow at me. I glanced at Andrew. Is this seriously a thing? Andrew shook his head and shrugged his burly shoulders while keeping his arms crossed. I returned my attention to Marvin. Whatever, we've been told that you're the one we need to talk to who knows how to track the Cowatora del Grande. Marvin's face fell. No, um, I don't think so. He turned his back and grabbed a wooden post to make sure we didn't run into the deck he had built next to his house. Is there any way you could tell us how to find it? I asked. Marvin sighed. The Cowa del Grande is very sick, last I saw. There is no good in you meeting with it in the state that it's in. I've accepted that when we meet again, the Kawatora will probably be dead. It doesn't matter whether it's alive or dead, I said. We need to recover something that's stuck in its shell. It's very important. And if the Kawatora lives and prefers to keep the object you seek, were you going to take it by force? No, we would bargain with it, and if it didn't want to work with me, then I would seal it forever in a Swiss army knife. Demons are my specialty, I smiled. The Kawatora del Grande was a huge Japanese turtle that was the mother of all Kappa Spawn, those weird turtle creatures from Japanese folklore. Regardless, they're classified as demons and as is their mother. And yeah, it would probably take more than a Swiss army knife to seal the Kawatora del Grande. I don't like this, Marvin said. I don't like it either, but it's a matter of life in Cthulhu. I stared at him for a minute as Marvin blinked in thought, and then realization filled his eyes. It's already time, isn't it? He asked, and I nodded. I remember when Juxenberg had all the necromancer artifacts destroyed or scattered into the seas. Magical creatures love to collect magical items. It does not surprise me that the Kawatora would have collected something in the last few hundred years. So, you'll take us? I asked. I'll have my boat take you, he said meekly. 
but I wouldn't go near the Kawatora at this time unless I had no other choice. We're that desperate, I sighed. Then I hope you have a port card because you can't port from the ocean, unless you can touch the ocean floor, not where you're going though. I checked my inventory. I had one port card which annoyed me because I'd bought a 12-pack at the beginning of summer thinking I wouldn't need them. I already knew the complicated water-air rule of porting and that made them invaluable in a pinch. A port card is a card that teleports you to a location instantly. They have a variety of uses including masking your porting scent as they leave none after you disappear. When a person ports on their own, they leave behind a biological sphere of whatever bacteria and microorganisms were piggybacking on them for support. Holy psionics have scripts that allow the caster to track that scent. Psionic assassins can also track a psionic target this way. The cards work if you're falling and can't port in midair, or if you're lost at sea. Andrew had two left, so we would be fine. I think we're good for an afternoon, I said. I do hope you know what you're getting yourself into. Marvin narrowed his gaze upon mine. Sure we do. Let's do this thing, I nodded to Andrew. Marvin shook his head and hopped over to the deck before turning to us. He stroked his beard. Try not to damage my boat, but if you could send it back after you're done... Jeez, so needy, I said. We'll try to send your boat back to you in one piece. I mean, we are psionics after all. I laughed, but no one else did. Marvin glanced at the clouds tracing across the sky in the west. Supposed to storm all week. Hold on tight. He patted the boat and we suddenly went jetting over the ocean waves toward the storm clouds on the horizon. We weren't on the water, but gliding between the waves in flight, rocketing at 60 miles per hour into the heart of nowhere in the South Pacific Ocean where all kinds of nasty demons are known to roost. As we soared under the violent wind and waves of the storm, the sail billowed from the mast to the soaking wet floor of the sailboat. Before us, against the lightning flashes of the clouds, we could see that the mast had broken and was now a cross suspended in air. Rain pelted us as Andrew and I were standing with our backs to the narrow captain's chamber of the ship. Another flash of lightning lit a mountain cresting the waves in the distance. The boat slowed as the storm dissipated overhead, giving way to parted clouds, the terrors in their cotton fabric revealing a universe of starlight from the Milky Way. A distant mist surrounded our boat, granting us about 50 yards of visibility. Andrew and I both jumped as something crashed into our rear. Looking around the cabin behind us, I saw a large wall of stone that circled into the distance at both directions. It was an odd accordance with the sky as we seemed to still be moving rather quickly beneath the slow-moving clouds. What's that smell? Andrew retched. I didn't smell anything at first, but then I realized what he was talking about as the cocktail shrimp we'd eaten on the ferry made their way back up my esophagus. Have you ever popped a really smelly pimple? That's what it smelled like. Spoiled, greasy chicken and rotten eggs. I covered my nose with my jacket sleeve. I'm sure there's some spell that will keep a radius of fresh air around us. Know anything? Not offhand, Andrew answered. He was pinching his nose closed and squinting through one eye. It was truly the worst smell that would later take weeks to get out of my hair. I'd have burned my clothes if that mattered. What's going on? I walked across the deck of our boat as I looked at the passing sky once more. We were in a very smelly lake of water and yet moving at the same time. Oh, wow. Andrew gasped as we emerged from the mist and saw clearly the massive stadium-sized head of the biggest turtle in the world. It was connected to a gargantuan shell that contained the very lake that we were in. The really bizarre part of this was the surreal ocean beyond the vast valley of its shell. It all made much more sense now because the turtle was swimming rapidly through the water away from the noise of the storm. Is this the Cowatora del Grande? I asked. That would explain why it smells so terrible, Andrew said. How big do you think this thing is? 
Fifty or so kilometers across and twice as long? I asked. Seems pretty close. Andrew grabbed the charred post that had been the mast of the ship and swiveled us around to glide the other direction. The smell intensified as we crossed the center of the lake within the Kawatora's back. Hard to believe our crash! Everything went tipping forward as the giant turtle crashed into a small island that was surrounded by sandy dunes. Everything within its back, including us, went sloshing and spilling from the basin within its shell. Andrew managed to surf us around, but eventually we capsized as the boat fell apart and we were covered in the disgusting lake water that reeked of pus. We drained from the turtle's back, eventually plopping into the cleansing ocean next to the island below. Once we were satisfied that we had been purged of the awful lake water, we swam to the shore where the turtle's head was resting. Its gray face was the size of a building. It portrayed the squinting, painful expression that only death can relieve. Jeez, it looks terrible. I shook my head. Where do you think the cloak would be? Andrew asked. Minnie said that it was in its shell, I said. She didn't mention that its shell was the size of a small town, nor that the turtle was basically dead. Andrew shook his head. She knew. That's why she put on the crown and took it off so quickly. She was trying to contain how hard this was going to be. Played us like the fiddle. I gazed at the turtle, seeing something leaking from the corner of its shell at its neck. Do you think she's single? Andrew asked, his face going red. Not for you. I mean, obviously, you're too young. Minnie? Why? I shook my head, wincing. It doesn't matter. What is that stuff? I pointed at the dripping yellow sludge coming from its neck. We ported closer. The moment we reappeared, the Kawatora lifted its head as it gasped for breath. It lowered its skull under the sand once more, sending a surge of the yellow goo flooding down its front leg and claw. That repulsive, sickly smell was concentrated as we held our noses. I turned around, trying to keep from vomiting. Are you serious? We weren't even doing this quest for money or anything? Yeah, Andrew clutched his chest. Chunks of buttery yellow pus sludged from the Kawatora's shell down its leg and into the sand. That's when Andrew puked his guts out. I heard it, but didn't see it as I focused on the waves rolling up and down the beach. Where the hell is Harriet when you need her? Nausea filled my head and stomach. How are we going to do this? I don't even know how to go near that thing. We're supposed to go inside it, right where that awful crap is coming out? No thank you. Sorry, Andrew said. I put my hands on my knees and took a deep breath, trying not to think about the smell. When I was finally over it, I stood up and remembered my dad. I had to do something. There wasn't even an enemy to fight, just a level 100 puke factor. I turned around and marched right up to the yellow crap. I could hear the turtle breathing heavily as it stared blankly at the endless sea. I breathed through my mouth, trying not to look down. Balls of steel, Elgar! Andrew yelled. I kept my eyes up as I walked by the turtle's chin and neck toward the opening in its shell where maggots of yellow pus were oozing across the sand. I had to turn around and keep my stomach from reflexively rejecting all biomatter even though I hadn't eaten in a few hours. Pushing myself forward, I stepped onto the yellow worms. They gave some resistance before bursting, literally causing others around them to burst. I felt splatters of hot pus on my cheek and in my hair. And that's when I vomited. Behind me, Andrew was laughing hysterically. Maybe we should port to a city and grab some hazmat suits. I looked over at him. He had meant it as a joke, but it wasn't a bad idea. I couldn't even get close to the Kawatora. There's got to be something magical we can do. Like heal it? Andrew asked. Maybe. Can you cast Holy Light? I asked. He shook his head. Oh right, the doubts. I'll give it a shot since I seem to be doing everything this time around. I raised my hands and remembered my holy spells. I didn't practice them often. 
The holy spectrum had been contaminated by power-hungry psionics that were restless to demonize anyone who stepped out and made themselves different. That's why my friends had spent all summer preparing me to counter holy abilities in the event that they tried to have me assassinated. I cast a Shinubit holy light spell and made the pus shrivel up, but it wasn't strong enough to effectively clear the stuff away. I was able to make it up to a crevice where I could see something tightly wrapped around the turtle's neck. It looked like a wire. The wire tightened as I drew closer, squeezing more pus from wounds that had formed around the strangling line. My interest distracted me from the smell and I moved in closer. The turtle gave a rasping wheeze as I plucked a gooey thread of something from the leaking sores and the yellow reptilian neck skin. Hey Andrew, I stepped out from the inside of the turtle shell, bursting a few of the pus maggots underfoot. I didn't care anymore. I jogged over to Andrew who was sitting on a rock facing away from the grotesque scene of the Kawatora. Hey, let me borrow a knife or something. Andrew checked his inventory and retrieved a dagger he'd had stored inside. It was fire enchanted. I returned to the giant tortoise's shell and crouched next to the line that was tightly wrapping the Kawatora's neck. My hand was shaking as I needled the point under the thread with hopes of not touching the oozing pus sores. The Kawatora took a sudden breath, gushing and popping a few of the sores all over my hand and arm. I reflexively stepped back but held the razor's edge to the line. I tried to cut it, but it suddenly whipped back and spiraled off the Kawatora's neck. Something heavy and wet slapped me in the face repeatedly. The Kawatora took a huge heaving gasp. I felt the creature moving, but a thick cloth kept hitting me. I put my hands up and moved back, but I still couldn't see what was happening. I was about to set the whole interior of the turtle shell ablaze with an angry fire spell, but my left heel hit the lip of the turtle shell and I fell. I hit a palm tree and fell face first into the mud and pus, which knocked the wind out of me. I watched in pain as the Kawatora marched away and dove back into the ocean. The mountainous shell of its back swam across the surface of the waves before they were swallowed up by the endless ocean depths. Well, that was a waste of time, Andrew said after porting to my side. Watched you bust your ass, though. That's always worth it. Everything that happened next happened extraordinarily quickly. From the brush beneath the palm trees nearby, a shadow moved and then Andrew was grappling at his throat. I saw the line that had been around the Kawatora's throat pressing into his. Andrew's face went red. I ported behind him and saw a taut black cord emerging from the bushes. When I kicked it, the thread released Andrew and animatedly wrapped all around me until I couldn't see, couldn't move, and couldn't breathe. It began to tighten. I could feel my reserves of air releasing as my organs were compressed from my stomach. Andrew yelled a spell that I couldn't hear as the thing released me. I fell to the muddy ground. Our assailant turned out to be a grayish-black cloak. The thread we had seen was the knit of the cloak itself. I caught my breath, an unnatural pain coming from my diaphragm with each intake of air. Well, maybe you should have said something sooner and we wouldn't have almost died. I looked over to see Andrew talking to Minnie via video chat. But yeah, we got it. He mopped his brow. Once my stomach stopped seizing, I picked up the cloak from the water. We had gone to extensive lengths to acquire this item, and here it was like a defeated trash bag on the beach. Is it safe to wear? I asked. Not yet. I'll need to disenchant the binding curse that's causing all this trouble, Minnie said from Andrew's Midas. Bring it back, and while you're acquiring the staff, I'll get to work. Sure thing. It was a piece of cake. Andrew grinned at Minnie through the Midas. She returned an awkward smile before closing her end. Piece of cake? I asked. You couldn't even look at the thing without puking your guts out. Whatever, man. It doesn't matter how famous you are. You're out of our league, bro, Andrew stated. Tell me you're not taking advantage of our near-apocalyptic situation in order to get with a girl who's trapped in the spirit realm, I said. And what do leagues have to do with it? She's only three years older than me. 
I just have a feeling she likes me, Andrew shrugged. All right, bro, she's all yours, I said sarcastically. We ported back to the Mudang school and met with Minnie before preparing for the next leg of our quest. Chapter 5 The Ritual It's difficult to continue my recountance of my first summer as a psionic caster without filling in the gap that is Dante Blevins. How it came to be him that caused Andrew and I so much trouble was a mystery for many years. I met his mother not long ago, and she explained that prior to that eventful summer, Dante, a holy psionic in his mid-thirties, had been working in the Hall of Artifacts of Granberg's Vatican for nine years before being transferred to transcriptions a few weeks prior to our untimely encounter. So why, then, was Dante there in the Hall of Artifacts when Andrew had painstakingly coordinated our infiltration during a shift rotation that allowed me thirty minutes in the Hall undisturbed? Unknown to us, Dante regularly returned to the Hall of Artifacts, particularly when the Holy Staff was absent because there's a certain mirror that is possessed by the ghost of a long-deceased psionic woman. There were supposedly sightings of her on occasion, but she never appeared when expected and didn't appear to just anyone. Later, I was able to get her to appear to me and explain that she and Dante were in love. He would visit her whenever he had the chance, but it had to be when no one else was around. He used to say that even to glimpse me for a few moments is worth the visit, Ariel of the Mirror had said. But Andrew had done his part in altering the schedule of the Hall of Artifacts for my chance to steal the Staff of Endor, and that put me directly in Dante's path. As Andrew had said, the Staff was trapped in a box of Xenoglass. It was as tall as me with an ornate golden hilt and headpiece that was encrusted with jewels. The Staff of Endor was invaluable, meaning its worth could not be measured in price. To lose it would be to lose a large piece of history. I withdrew a crystal-headed hammer, which cost a lot more zen than I had wanted to spend in Myrness, and the last remaining shard of the minotaur horn I'd kept from my previous encounter with Xenoglass. Placing the blunt point of the shard up against the glass, I drew the crystal hammer back and smashed the back of the horn. The horn and the crystal-headed hammer shattered to pieces, creating a melon-sized hole in the front pane of Xenoglass. Huge metal slats began falling in front of all the other artifacts. I only had about eight seconds. I grabbed hold of the staff through the hole. It was frustrating to maneuver it up in the glass case and out through the opening I had made, cutting the back of my wrist in the process. Just as I had the staff and stepped back, the metal slat fell before the staff's now empty glass case. I couldn't port, so I turned around and dashed down the avenue as the metal walls began falling throughout the room in an effort to trap thieves. I had to use my gravity spell to run on the room's walls in order to narrowly avoid being crushed by the massive metal plates that were magic-proof, meaning that if I were trapped inside, it would be nearly impossible to get out. I barely dove out of the biblical wing of the Hall of Artifacts as the entire hall was now a nexus of metal prisons. I slid on the red and gold carpet, halting before none other than Dante Blevins himself. He had short brown hair and a black robe like all the other priests that wandered Granberg. Who? His face screwed up at the sight of me. You're that kid! I swore internally as I recovered my stance. I was standing there, holding the staff of Endor as alarms went off. It didn't look good, and now someone knew exactly who had stolen the staff. My father's predicament flashed through my mind in an instant and the game changed. Nothing would be easy from here on. Dante would be the first casualty in this destructive path to keeping Cthulhu at bay. Dante, not used to thinking on his feet, didn't conjure his bubble shield as I launched him back with a telekinetic burst of energy. I had planned to burn him alive with a fireball, but six holy psionics came hurrying around the corner behind where Dante had landed. I jogged the other direction and hooked a left down a long hall toward an arched window, which would be my escape. Three holy psionics in white cloaks came around the corner just as I was in motion to jump through the window. 
They were startled by my appearance, otherwise they might have reacted in time. I ran between them and jumped straight out the window, diving down the great Italian Gramberg Mountain toward the split of the river Tiber below. I tried to use a levitation spell that many had taught me, but I fumbled the words and couldn't remember which word came first. I finally got it a little late, but it probably kept me from breaking bones on the rocks beneath the water's surface. I was able to get out onto the shore and jog down the cobblestone path through the fold toward Rome. I hid behind a tree as holy psionics began porting up and down the street. The entire psionic law enforcement community would be dogging my every step soon. I didn't move as they scanned the area. As soon as I got into Rome, I'd be able to port, but as long as I was in Gramberg, I'd be stuck. I made my move once two holy psionics ported closer to the river to investigate. I climbed a stone fence that served as the barrier that split the fold from Rome, and fell into a sewer alleyway that smelled far worse than the river. Nearby, a train track cut through the city overhead, but I was free and clear. I put the staff into my inventory and ported back to the Mudong school. The chaos I left behind is what I couldn't know because I was still not connected to the psionic social network community. Dante was able to show the world through his Midas that I, Elgar Centrifius King, had stolen the staff of Endor and Solomon's cloak. Those two pieces of information were enough to tell the holy community all they needed to know about what the last remaining necromancer in existence was up to. The Holy Council understood the necessity of the necromancer's task to come together and make sure Cthulhu was pacified once every 300 years. On the other hand, having purged the world of necromancers save for me, I don't think they had a plan for dealing with Cthulhu this go-around. While the information of my activity moved quickly between the Holy Council and the psionic community, I was studying the rite for summoning Cthulhu in my timeless world. The rite was an archaic demonic, which was frustrating because the demonic species had moved beyond archaic into the modern tongue about 30,000 years prior to Jesus' crucifixion. But Cthulhu was old and set in his ways, so he wasn't going to change before the inevitable departure of its soul. Those days passed in such a blur, it was hard to make time to sleep, and time itself began to slip away from me. When Andrew and I would appear in a new location, the sun was always in a different place or it was gone completely, leaving a cold sky of stars in its absence. There was less jet lag, but you could definitely tell when you were on a different part of the planet. It was mostly smell and ambiance, but there were subtle differences in the gravity and air wherever you went. At last, Andrew and I stood before Minnie in my timeless world. We had retrieved the items she requested in order to summon Cthulhu, and I had prepared the rite as asked. There was a lot to remember, but I would be able to read directly from my Midas during the ritual. That was easier than expected, Minnie shrugged. Easy? Are you kidding me? I asked, remembering the god-awful stench of the Kawatora del Grande. Imagine if these items weren't drawn to you, Elgar, Minnie said. The Kawatora del Grande species of sea demon rarely swims to the surface unless they're prepared to die. Power draws power. Solomon's cloak did everything it could to be found as the reunion with Cthulhu was due. Luck has been in your favor so far, Elgar. Let's hope it does not betray you. What makes you think my luck might betray me? I asked. Luck functions on a wheel in case you haven't noticed, said Minnie. A run of good luck seems great in the present, but the curvature will balance and correct itself eventually. In Korea, it's a sign of good luck to have bad luck before a major test or life event because it means the correction will be in your favor when it matters. But a series of good events can spell the opposite before a major trial. That being said, I implore you to follow the right exactly as we discussed. Be on guard for any surprises that might come up. What kind of surprises? I asked. Nothing in particular, but expect surprises. If nothing happens, good, Minnie said seriously. Help me understand what I'm doing again, Andrew said. 
You're the most important piece of the puzzle. You're the medium, the battery. A juggernaut can physically compound a considerable amount of pressure, but he can do so psionically as well. Cthulhu will pour his attention into the capsule. That's this thing here. She opened her Midas and showed us a diagram of the ridge that we had already studied a dozen times. She pointed at a canister contraption that would house Andrew throughout the ritual. The battlefield ahead of us was a small stone island in Toulouse, about 2,500 miles west of Yuktaz. It was a regular deserted island except for the mountain that jutted from its eastern side where an ornate stone platform was carved just above the baseline of the sea. During every season except summer, the platform was submerged underwater. Summer was the only time Cthulhu could be summoned and this was currently the standard location for summoning him until the planet Yuri inevitably ceased to be. My position would be on a large, natural arc that was suspended above the platform. I would begin the right after Andrew got into position on the circular dais in the middle of the lower platform. The spirits would begin harvesting Andrew's spirit energy in order to draw Cthulhu to the shore where we could make our arrangements and help him to feed from a particular shadow realm. I wasn't sure which one at the time, but that was pretty much half of what the rite was about. So long as I followed everything to a T, I would be able to do the necromatic summoning part without needing to know anything special. I did need to make my request to Cthulhu an ancient demonic, which had already proven to be painfully challenging. What happened with Dante was the most confusing part because I didn't expect him to cause the level of damage that he did eventually cause. After he and a handful of other holy psionics saw me, I became the most sought-after psionic in the world. Andrew had me use port cards to cover my microbiome signature to avoid hunters from tracking us. Meanwhile, Dante, who had spent nine years researching the Hall of Artifacts, had offered a solution to the looming problem that was Cthulhu. After Archbishop Delanova had heard Dante's statement, he, Dante, and the new Grand Council of Mages, Lucian Handel, met for the first time to discuss how they should deal swift justice to me once I was found. I am ignorant of the details of that conversation, but it didn't go in my favor. As for how they should proceed with the threat of an untamed Cthulhu, it was a suggestion that Dante himself proposed after having studied the curiosities of the Hall of Artifacts that spurred the attention of the Council. This led to the eventual go-ahead that would spell death for several Council members by the end of this ridiculous mishap. The solution was Grambutine. Exactly what that is I didn't know for the longest time but it's supposedly a god-class holy defender that has the capacity to defend entire cities as well as bring a horribly deadly holy assault in times of holy war. It had been summoned a grand total of three times in biblical history to prevent catastrophic destruction during times of demonic warfare. As for what Grambutine is physically, it was apparently large enough to shield hundreds of thousands of human citizens within a city the size of Troy. It held the mobile holy refuge of Terminopoly, and that's all anyone knew of it. That the newly instated Grand Council of Mages held a hearing and discussed mass destruction on an unimaginable scale via psionic military warfare, and that it was in retaliation to my being roped into this quest for many, it all seems incredible in hindsight, watching the chess pieces make their way across the board. I had always wanted an exceptional but average life altogether like anyone else, but I also believed from an early age that you had to make your own luck in life through discipline and experience. I didn't buy into that whole Wheel of Fortune BS. The Grand Council of Mages was an order of powerful psionics who were much like the UN, the highest public council of interdimensional psionics from each of the eleven universes. They held the most political power of any psionic council and could change the entire direction of a universe's course. After I learned who they were, I wanted nothing more than to join their ranks even though I knew my class meant they would never allow me to join them. That was before I knew that they had moved to have me and anyone working with me, as well as Cthulhu, slaughtered by Grambutine. 
Of course, this was the new GCM. Last year, just as I was starting summer break, the old GCM was slaughtered in cold blood. All twelve of them. As Andrew and I ported to a secure location in Tulu Desert to make our way to the ritual location, the new GCM had authorized a plan that could potentially bring devastation to not just one universe, but all eleven. Cthulhu could travel through the folds under the ocean with remarkable accuracy, and find his way to any habitable city or planescape. Summoning Grambutine to assault Cthulhu would be considered an act of war against both Cthulhu and Cthulhu's race. And if all of Cthulhu's brothers and sisters and children met the call to arms, every psionic city across the Eternium would be doomed. I remember the sky being black with clouds as we used an old paddle boat that would have sunk without magical assistance to jet to the island. Flickers of lightning gave way to grumbling thunder as the shadow of the mountain emerged from the mist and rose as we drew closer to the shoreline. Our boat jetted us all the way to the island beneath the dark sky. The smell was clear and fresh with the mixture of sea salt in the air. We port jumped around the island to the ritual point. Ahead of us, my position lay at the top of a large cliff face. Andrew's position was below in the dais within the titanium coffer that was to house Andrew and shield him from Cthulhu's sight to prevent madness and petrification during the ritual process. I wore the crown of Odysseus, Solomon's cloak, and held the staff of Indor. I didn't look as cool as I felt with my cheesy summer clothes under the cloak and steampunk goggles over my eyes. Many told Andrew the ritual coffer would shield him, but he still wore the training plate mail he had gotten to prepare him for paladinship. We exchanged uncertain looks. You worried? I asked. A little, shrugged Andrew. You know, Cthulhu almost always kills the Dreadnought. I did not know that, I said. Yeah, Andrew said. Then why did you agree to come? I asked as we looked down at the four separated quarters of titanium and gold coffer that would close around Andrew once he gave the activation spell. That would signal the initiation of the ritual. I knew I didn't fail my paladin ship. I mean, I didn't understand what happened during the ceremony, but I knew that I couldn't fail in being a paladin. That means it's mine. This quest calls for a particular paladin that we don't have time to find. It's me, and it's gotta be me, Andrew said determinedly. Who knows, man, I said. Cthulhu might telekinetically rip my spine out of my body. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Anybody would agree that psionics of our age attempting to pull off this level of magic would have a very good chance of dying. So you ready, Elgar? You ready to kick Cthulhu's ass if need be? Andrew planted a chainmail fist into his palm. Let's be confident, not cocky, I said. I'll get into position first, then when I give the thumbs up, you get ready to begin. Once the coffer closes, I'll begin my part of the ritual. He nodded and I made my way to the top of the ark. It was a tall stone platform that overlooked the ritual dais. It was almost like being at the helm of a great theater, the throne of some glorious leader. I stood on the edge and saw Andrew waiting. The wind was really strong from the ocean surrounding the island. The clouds churned through the sky above as the black sea rocked in heavy formation throughout my sight ahead. I gave Andrew the thumbs up and a nod. He poured it into the center of the dais and took a few breathers. He must have been contemplating what to do next as I went over my own ritual. It had taken me forever in the other world to memorize the right word for word. I just remembered the words they were similar to and sounded them out in sequence. Once I had a good idea of what everything was, I sped it up and kept rehearsing. It was about 16 pages of drawn-out ancient demonic. Translated, it pretty much flatters Cthulhu over and over again with praise while weaving suggestions for its next course of action into the lyrics. The other parts were drawn-out spells for summoning the spirits from the Shadow Realm so that Cthulhu could feast upon them, and then the spell for opening the gateway to Cthulhu's home planet where his children were currently swimming during their own prime season. 
All in all, the rehearsal time took about 60 hours, far more than an afternoon as many suggested, but I'm not as good at committing things to memory as most Korean kids. Andrew finally put his fist into the air. He spoke the activation spell. The purple sand of the Midas began to pour from the bottom of his fist into a hole in the center of the dais. Beneath him was an ornate maze of lines that looked like a giant indecipherable fingerprint. As the purple sand rained, the seal began to turn purple. Once every line of the seal was filled, Andrew lowered his hand as the steel coffer began to slide into position. He glanced over his shoulder at me one last time, giving me his signature smirk that spoke the words he never needed to say. And then he was gone, locked away inside a metal and gold can that looked like it might survive a nuclear explosion. It was my turn. I lifted both my hands like an orchestra conductor and began to speak. I chanted the words from memory, beginning with Dr. Pepper. It was actually Dear Powie, but Dr. Pepper helped me remember the first word, which helped me remember the whole line. The first line was Dr. Pepper Mowgli sends love to Paris for sex-changing pigeons. Or, Dear Powie Mowgli sends love to Paris for sex-changing pigeons. See how familiarity can trigger memorization? It's how we learn other languages. I mean, what 14-year-old is going to forget Dr. Pepper Mowgli sends love to Paris for sex-changing pigeons? The rite continued this way, my eyes remaining fixed upon nothing beyond my hands that never moved. I was a statue. I stared at the line where the shrouded black clouds met the ocean horizon. I spoke rhythmically but mechanically, chanting the words in a dead monotone that praised Cthulhu and all of his great accomplishments. I had to recount Cthulhu's life and successes in order which I had separated in my mind into a whole sublist of kooky English words in order to keep track. Hang on, cause it's only just getting started. Bubblegum, catbird, chicken fried, banana bits, large grand crockpots and fizzy pop bathroom breaks, bestest strawberries and Dracula cherries for winter wombats and aardvarks, popcorn pudding and crowbars for elderly corn crops. Yes, somewhere within that mess of language lay the right that I spoke in order to coax Cthulhu from his slumber. Crawdads of tree frogs and shark quests this night calls burning scarecrows. The purple sand of my own magic swirled around me as I powered forward. I was just getting started on the third page as the clouds came to a dead standstill. The water of the ocean became passive. The wind ceased altogether and there was no sound or feeling as I continued my nonsensical ramblings in the ancient demonic tongue. Parts of Andrew's coffer began to charge and spin. A sort of static lightning sparked from the spinning gyros within the four quadrants of the can. A figure ported to the cliffside nearby. I didn't break concentration or speech. It was Minnie dressed in a brown overcoat. Her long black hair flowed over her shoulder. I spared a glance at her during a quick breath. She nodded. She had been released from the magical prison that had allowed her to keep Cthulhu at rest until she could find me. Something told me that, within my home universe, my father had just woken from his coma. I offered Cthulhu sustenance. Cookie dough, light bulb, gas can, pomegranate Wednesday, camera, windowsill man. And then I felt him. It was as though a planet of gravity had suddenly latched onto me from out of sight. I didn't move or falter my words, but it felt as though I had been towed forward by my chest. From the ocean beyond Andrew, the Great Old One, the Master of the Deep, Cthulhu, began to rise through the surface of the ocean before us. Its skin was mottled, opaque black. I kept my gaze beyond it, not staring directly at its eyes. The vision was split to me, but I could still see the skewed details of Cthulhu's monstrous tentacles descending from the bottom of his face and resting on his chin like a strange tentacle beard. Cthulhu's head was huge. The rest of him climbed from the ocean, the largest thing short of a skyscraper I had ever seen. 
My words ended, awaiting the official reply from Cthulhu. Cthulhu gave a brassy, Wooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooooo
For more information, check out ekpublishingmedia.com. The Apocalypse Theatre Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2020.